On episode 26 of the pod, we make some fun and exciting announcements about a new addition to the DTM family, answer our listener question that expands our conversation about globalization, discuss some news that actually doesn't have anything to do with an armed insurrection at the Capitol, and we discuss why automation could be what takes your job before a South American migrant worker even has a chance to. This is Down the Middle, a political podcast. All right. We are here. It's a little bit lighter this week, just by a little bit. I'm Justin Siegel. As always with me is Robert Scott Leifer. Hey, Rob, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing better than last week. Better than last week, for sure. You know, I want to start this episode off with something we haven't done before. It's a quote from the great Alexander Hamilton, and I think it's very fitting Mm -hmm. uh, to our current situation right now and our current president. And uh, I'm not going to analyze it for you. You're not going to analyze it. We're just going to leave you guys to have it marinate there. And, uh, you know, hopefully you like it. So Sounds good. Hit me with it. The quote goes like this. The truth, unquestionably, is that the only path to a subversion of the Republican system of the country is by flattering the prejudices of the people and exciting their jealousies and apprehensions to throw affairs into confusion and bring on civil commotion. When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Alexander Hamilton. His name is Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> Quote from, se- from August 18th, ni- uh, 1792. So uh, Hamilton knew. It's so amazing to really think about how brilliant the founders were. Yeah. And they, they knew this would happen. They, they were just like the, perhaps the greatest thinkers of all time. And the fact that there were so many of them all thinking this way at one yeah. time it's I mean, extraordinary. just think about Without that. a time machine yeah. or one of those it, telephone right. booths that Bill and Ted right. has, it's like, it's extraordinary. It really is, right. actually. So we haven't even gotten into the episode yet, and we have oh, we a hell of a lot to get to. <laughs> we really do. <laughs> so remember, guys, give us a break on this one, because we essentially haven't had a real episode in a month. So we have a yeah. lot to get to. So it's going to be a little longer than usual, probably. Okay, so without further ado, Honest Abe's Housekeeping Hangouts. When he growed up this tiny babe. Folks all called him Honest Abe, Abraham, Abraham. Okay, so first order of business, the people spoke and we listened, okay? So we are still relatively new to podcasting and we're constantly attempting to make the show better for you guys. We 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 had a talk with a few people over the break uh, about how we can make uh, the show a little better and more concise. So thanks to everyone who contributed feedback. Yeah. We are going to be adjusting some of the format uh, of the show to hopefully make it a bit more concise and trim some of that unnecessary fat 
it won't necessarily be on this episode, but, it w- <laughs> but that will be forthcoming. Uh, one of the things that several people have told us is that our intro to the show was too long and that once you've heard it, you really don't need to hear it again. So a lot of you have said that you were fast forwarding through it. So we're trying some new things like you like you heard at the, at the top of the show, mm-hmm. trying some new things with it uh, that will give you guys something a bit more succinct and informative about the specific episode that we're on. So new year, new developments, man. I like it. I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be helpful. And you guys will be the benefactors. So get ready for it. Next, Justin, tell the listeners about the ad program again that we're launching. Well, I will keep this quick because as usual, we have so much to get to. But Mm -hmm. we've announced our ad program. We are offering free advertising space on our show until the end of the pandemic. So let your parent, cousin, sibling, aunt, little brother, whatever, know maybe you have a company you'd like to promote. Write to us at downthemiddlepodcastusa at gmail.com or by direct message on our socials or the Discord. Lots of ways to get a hold of us, so do it. Mm-hmm. Next big announcement today. We are launching the second official podcast under the Intermediary Network, our forthcoming media venture. We will give you more information on it later in this show. We don't want to give it all away at the top of the show, so you're going to have to listen to this episode to get all the information. That's yeah, how we know. Exactly. That's how we'll know. Uh, but I will say that the pilot episode of this new podcast will be coming out next week in lieu of a Down the Middle podcast, and it will feature me, Justin, Editor-in-Chief Clay Cogman, and a special guest. This is the second official offering of our media company, the Intermediary Network, and we'll give you more information about the first episode later in this show. Lastly. Over the break, we received perhaps our most glowing and exceptional review on Apple Podcasts. Perhaps? Perhaps. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Now, we sent the review to some of our family and friends, and it was so good that several people asked if we had written it ourselves. Now, (laughs) Justin and I can both assure you that we did not, nor do do either of us know who did, but we can assure you also that it was not either of our parents yeah yeah they've already they've already written reviews yeah exactly (laughs) and and frankly i don't know i mean our parents are are getting up there in age i don't want to insult them or anything but they can't write like very well done yeah (laughs) maybe my dad maybe (laughs) maybe maybe uh but but the review really outlines uh exactly what we wanted to do with this show so we thought we'd toot our own horn a little and waste a little bit of time here and engage in some shameless self-promotion by reading the review on the air. So here it goes. The title of the review is The Best Political Podcast in America. It's hard to argue with that, I gotta tell you. That's that's not hyperbole, folks. That is actually true. It's a a fact. (laughs) Okay, here it goes. Uh, I've been listening to these guys since the first episode, and I've worked my entire career in media. The growth that Rob has made in the field of punditry in 25 episodes is nothing short of amazing. His analysis is incredibly insightful, and his ability to take the news of the day and relate it to larger cultural issues in the country and in the West is a special talent. And somehow, it never is so sophisticated that a political novice wouldn't understand the greater points, yet it is also thought-provoking enough for the political junkie. See, I'm not an elitist. There you go. It's official. (laughs) He's also able to combine it all with humor and give the listener the impression that he takes politics with a grain of salt and recognizes the insignificance of vapid political quarreling. 
Something that has turned so many of us off to the hyperbolic nature of the news anchors of the day. Uh, His indifference to the thought police that exist on both sides of the aisle and his confidence to express views on certain issues that are sometimes staunchly conservative and sometimes tremendously progressive would likely deny him an opinion spot on any of the current media networks. Well, I'm happy about that. That's a compliment right there. But that is precisely the point of why his analysis is such a breath of fresh air. It represents the lens in which the majority of Americans probably view these issues and why more and more of us are hungry for alternative media choices. Now on to Justin's review here, okay? And this this wasn't wasn't very shabby either. So nervous. Yeah. (laughs) Justin has also developed an undeniably important role on the show as the historian and soft-spoken, often agreeable persona who expresses traditionally conservative viewpoints in a relatable and succinct manner. So soft-spoken. Those are all my, all my nicknames in high school. All of them. <laughs> so soft-spoken. <laughs> Uh, He is the perfect counterpoint to Rob, who is often fiery and protracted. I hate when I'm protracted. Um, Your nickname's in high school. (laughs) It's that that fiery and protracted was my nickname. Uh, Because he has a knack for closing out a particular topic with one precise and honest statement, which is a great way of buttoning up a point that Rob is making. His expertise as a theologian is an asset to the show, I agree, especially for people like me who trend towards atheism. My viewpoint on religion and its place in society would be dramatically different if more religious people thought like Justin and had the ability to retain humility rather than arrogance and certitude in their faith. Very good. Lovely lovely compliment. I like that. That's a great compliment. Uh, It's Justin's ability to see politics through a similar lens to that of which he sees religion that makes him perfect for a podcast that prides itself on being measured. All in all, Down the Middle is as close to a perfect political podcast as is possible. It's compelling, funny, educational, and very entertaining. Perhaps my favorite element to the show is the fact that I can sense a deep and loving friendship between the two hosts that is rare and frankly inspiring. We inspire people, Jay. That's cute. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The listener gets a sense that the uh, political conversations and debates taking place on the show are secondary to the sincere friendship and respect the hosts have for each other. Fact check true. Yep, uh, they are so confident in their relationship that they're able to speak up when they think the other person is wrong about something without making the listener feel uncomfortable that one of them will take something too personally. See, we don't we don't. They're not privy to the fist fights that happen after the show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah they miss it. <laughs> Over Zoom. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, again, a breath of fresh air is the best term I can use to describe it. it, it if more uh, people listen to Rob and Justin and the Down the Middle podcast, we'd be a better country. There's no doubt about it. So uh, we don't know who this person is, uh, but we sincerely thank you for that yeah. glowing review. Incredible. It was uh, It's an honor to receive a review like that. For someone to take the time to do that is mm-hmm. uh, is really great. And it basically, the reviewer expressed pretty much everything we set out to do with Completely. this show. So we are very honored to get that. You know, saying that about our relationship, too, is really amazing to read, that that comes through it, in, in, in how we do how we run the show. I love that. It was really nice. Yeah, I think that we are in a time that of such divisiveness that, and even though you, you and I do agree on a lot of things, mm-hmm. even when we have our disagreements, it never comes off as, oh, th- this is getting uncomfortable. Right, you know? of course. And, and I, think, I think that's a really great point to make. So. Yeah. Uh, so now, one of the things that makes this political podcast better 
than most, in our opinion at least, is that we truly, truly care about our audience. So much so that we created a dedicated segment at the front of every episode where we answer our listeners' questions. This segment is called We Care A Lot. Okay, so first question of 2021. Um, this question came in a few weeks ago yeah. after our episode entitled uh, Can Blue and Red Share a Bed? Where we touched on globalism and a new brand of conservatism affectionately called compassionate conservatism. Some people call it conservative populism, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, whereby the concept of globalism and globalization, once championed by economic conservatives and still championed by many, uh, has become a dirty word in certain conservative circles and has been replaced with a sort of newfangled populism and isolationism. The obvious foreign power that this discussion brings up is China. And we received this question clearly from one of our conservative listeners regarding China and our economic relationship with them. Justin. Why don't you read the question again? So this is from Hot Tub Lova 86. I'll never get tired of saying that name because it's weird. Yeah. Uh, one mm-hmm. aspect you guys touched on too briefly last week on the subject of globalization and the current disdain for it on the far right and far left is the factor of political power and money given to economies and nations who rampantly commit human rights slash climate slash political violations outside the U.S., specifically countries like China, which already holds most of the U.S. debt and has eroded American industries and factories, by offering cheaper labor, some of which includes child workers. So what do you say to people who are pro-American jobs and anti-free-for-all globalization for these reasons? Should there be limits on globalization for political or humanitarian reasons? Rob, what do you think about that? Okay, great, great question. Now, I'm going to give a little analogy first. Uh, One thing we really haven't talked about much on this show, funny enough, is immigration, which is weird. You know, we've, we haven't had any serious discussions on immigration, both legal and illegal. It's because we didn't start this show closer to the beginning of Trump's term. Yeah, yeah. For, for, but for something that was such a, a, a issue. big issue yeah. for, for Trump, you know, um, we haven't had much discussion and the impact that it has on society. So look forward to that coming to a topic of the day near you sometime soon. Um <laughs> But I bring that up because I put globalization and immigration in sort of the same category, which is it isn't perfect. It displaces a segment of the population and therefore it's controversial. But as a capitalist and a realist myself, I believe the benefits of both far outweigh the negatives. Of course, there are always going to be negative aspects of any government policy or economic strategy. You know, nothing can be perfect for everyone. But let me first explain what I mean using immigration as an example and sort of an analogy. Is that cool with you? Yeah, let's go. Okay, let's do it. So there was there was a piece on Vice News a couple years ago called Sweet Home Alabama. I really suggest you all Google it. It's on YouTube. You could you could check it out. And this this piece highlighted the problems the state of Alabama was having in its fight against illegal immigration. Alabama, being a big agricultural state, had a high level of illegal immigrants who were coming to the state to make a living, obviously. Now, Alabama, being a very conservative state, had a a large portion of its population who were obviously very concerned about the influx of illegals into the state for economic reasons, of course, but also for safety reasons, which I don't want to get into now because it'll open up a can of worms, but I'll leave it at this. South American migrants commit a disproportionately low amount of crime in this country. This is easily verifiable. Uh, proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists 
of Sciences, uh, PNAS, did a comprehensive study on this a few years ago and found that illegal immigrants committed disproportionately low amount of crime compared to both legal immigrant populations and native-born U.S. citizens. That's not me being woke. That's just a fact, and facts don't care about your feelings. Anyway, the state of Alabama in 2011 passed the most draconian immigration bill in the country, whereby basically illegals found working in the state of Alabama would face large prison sentences rather than simple deportation. And these policies led to a huge outflux of illegals from the state. It's estimated that close to 40% of the state's agricultural workforce left the state over a six-month period for nearby states like Mississippi in an effort to avoid getting caught. But when a state loses 40% of its day laborers, Mm -hmm. uh, that quickly you know, becomes a problem for one of the largest economic sectors. Of course, this can do a lot of damage to the economic stability of the state, sure, is the point yeah. I'm making. So the state of Alabama tries a few different things to correct the situation. First, they thought, well, let's try to get blue collar Alabamians back into these jobs, right? I mean, they're the ones who have seemingly been so negatively effective, affected by the immigration influx, right? So they hired a bunch of white people to do the job and the output went down dramatically. A potato farmer named Walt Wrigley said, quote, I wanted to hire Americans only, but most showed up late and wanted to go home by three, not to mention they needed to get paid double what I was paying my South American workforce. After two months, I had to close my farm. So then the state of Alabama decided maybe they should try something new, and they started utilizing ex-convicts who were in, like, halfway homes, who, you know, they didn't have to pay as much, and whom they thought would be anxious to get back on their feet and back into the workforce. Same thing happened. Jeff Travis, a lettuce farmer in Greenville, Alabama, said, quote, my new workforce of ex-cons and halfway housers were more interested in socializing and smoking cigarettes than they were in picking lettuce. Mm -hmm. So then the state of Alabama said, you know what, why don't we go back to the old tried and true method of using slave labor? (laughs) So they literally brought back the chain gang from prison and started using prison, you know, prison populations who, of course, they didn't need to pay at all. This turned out to be the least productive of all their brilliant ideas, as it turns out, because, you know, when people aren't getting paid to work, they're not much interested in working. (laughs) Yay, capitalism. So it ends up happening. Okay, let's talk about what ends up happening. The state of Alabama, one of the most conservative states in the country, ends up literally rescinding their draconian immigration bill in an effort to entice illegal immigrants to come back into the state. Moral of the story here. Despite what you may read in your favorite right-wing publication, immigration and an influx of migrant workers predominantly entering from South America comes with many problems. I'm not going to say it's problem-free. It has many problems. But it has indeed been a net positive for the American economy and especially for consumerism. Now, this is how I feel about globalization and how a lot of conservatives, ranging from Ben Shapiro to my buddy Justin here, feel about the net effect of a globalized economy. It has ushered in, to use a term that I have used here many times, a golden age of consumerism, which has improved our general and overall quality of life tenfold from where it was 50 years ago. And yes, that comes with negative repercussions. And yes, our government has to do a better job at forcing American corporations who are utilizing labor from overseas to not engage with countries that are participating in human rights violations and or slave labor. That has always been a liberal priority, but it should be a bipartisan Mm -hmm. priority. Bottom line, 
If it weren't for the globalized economy, iPhones, for instance, would be something that only the topmost elite people in society could afford. That would deepen the feelings of economic inequality in this country, and that's why there should not be a general disdain for globalization, in my opinion. Justin, what do you think? Yeah, I do believe there's plenty room for nuance here. A country like China poses extreme danger to our democracy, imposes severe and immoral practices on its citizens. And so why then, if we consider ourselves to be responsible and watchdogs of the world, would we support that country wholly? We should place some political and economical pressure on countries that we know are unjust, China included, but it's not black and white like most things, as you mentioned, and this is one of those issues that requires a deep dive. There are good things to come out of our relationship with China, like low prices for goods that I buy on Amazon. It's a much larger conversation to have, and maybe we'll see it soon on our new podcast coming soon. Very, very good. Now, I kind of thought that Justin and I would share similar opinions on this topic. So I wanted to get a third voice in here to mix things up a little. So uh, I approached our editor-in-chief, Clay Cogman, as we often do, uh, with this question to get a lawyerly but also detailed answer to this listener's question, remembering that Clay is sort of somewhere in between Justin and me on the political spectrum. Uh, We heard back from him, and as expected, his answer was brilliant and detailed and very much worthy of being read on the show. So we're going to give Justin a little music bed here as he reads what Clay had to say on this matter. Justin, conjure up your inner Cogman and do it. All right, buckle in. This is going to be a long one. (laughs) To answer the direct question first, yes, there should absolutely be limitations on globalization for political and humanitarian reasons. The reality is more complicated than that, though. The difficulty in this question is that we've gone too far down this road to implement a workable policy solution to the problem you've identified. We are deep in bed and dependent on China's economy for our survival. We need their products to power our businesses, and we need them at the prices to which we've become accustomed. We also need them to buy our bonds so we can fund whatever cause the Democrats are trying to fix this week. And for every 15 years when the GOP loses the page of the handbook that tells them they are the party of fiscal responsibility, and they either invade a country or elect an idiot president. It is all well and good to say that we should take a stand against countries that use child labor or who either effectuate or tolerate humanitarian crises. But at this point, what is the path to independence from those nations? It was easy for the U.S. to help depose guys like Gaddafi or Noriega or even Saddam. Those guys were corrupt maniacs on a power trip that contributed relatively little to the world outside of them. What is the U.S. supposed to do about China? We need their cheap products and we sure as hell don't want to go to war with them. And if we declared our economic independence from them and tried to not do business with them at all anymore in the name of taking a moral stance against their ways, our way of life would change as we know it and no one would be happy with the short-term result. I suspect that while people on both left and right can agree that China does bad things and their values do not match up with our own, if you polled people asking for their opinion on legislation that would cut China out but told them it would cause the following blank number of outcomes, they would say they don't support it. In other words, I think every voter in America, to some degree, is pro-American jobs and anti-human rights violations right up until the moment when you tell them exactly what it will cost them. All of this is to say that as noble and desirable as selecting our business partners based on ethics is, it is nearly impossible to separate politics from the question. And this goes both to who we should avoid and who we should help. The China problem is the most acute current example, but globalization in a modern world was always going to carry risks of this nature. As long as there are corrupt people, both domestic and abroad, there will be a risk of getting into bed with someone who engages in actions they shouldn't. 
We formed a global organization 75 years ago designed to identify and deal with the very worst actors on the planet and promptly made two of the five most powerful members of that body nations that now and in the past have committed rampant human rights violations. The UN Security Council was never going to work and indeed hasn't ever worked. Stalin started killing millions immediately, all while sitting on the newly established council, because even then we were becoming too integrated, politically or otherwise, peaceful or hostile, to quit each other. The debate over this question also gets right at the extremism problem that confronts American politics and discourse today. Ideologues on both sides ask that we assess things as binary questions. Committed capitalists say that restriction of a global economy is a step towards socialism and tout that American contributions to the global economy have lifted billions out of poverty. On the other hand, people, mostly on the left, decry the idea that we do business with anyone who ever does a naughty thing, be it China, Saudi Arabia, or whoever. The former of these positions ignores that capitalism, like all things, has drawbacks, and we have a moral and ethical obligation to pay attention to them. The latter of these positions would have us destroy the global and national economies as a means of satisfying a sort of purity test that we can't possibly pass. We don't have a time machine, but in essence, this is the key question. Has globalization, on the whole, done more good than bad? If we had that time machine, would we go back and stop this train before it left the station, knowing what we know now? The answer to these questions are undoubtedly yes and no, respectively. Globalized capitalism has spread more wealth and progress around the world than any number of individual countries working on their own could have. It has saved impoverished and totalitarian-dominated countries. Deposing human rights violators is a good and necessary task. Enabling third-world countries to grow their economies through computer tech, agricultural tech, and education are good and necessary tasks. Capitalist ideologues would thus say that we cannot limit the growth of worldwide business because look at what good it's done. This is a myopic and self-interested argument. On the other hand, I don't think people who carry boycott China signs truly understand what they're saying. So while this discussion and the question focused on our need to help others and to avoid exploiting foreign workers, the motivation for deglobalization or moderating globalization needs to be first and foremost fixing our issues at home if people are going to get behind it. This ought to be an issue we can all agree upon, and really, I think there's less divide in Washington on this than it seems. Communities have been devastated by jobs leaving overseas, often due to Republican-led but ultimately bipartisan legislation. Democrats have always loved helping lower-income workers, and now Republicans have suddenly decided they love that too, since it helped them win the presidency. Wall Street people, regardless of how they vote, won't like bringing jobs home if it limits the scope of worldwide business, read profits, and forces more tax dollars to flow through our system. This is likely still a long shot as long as people with money oppose it, but this is as good as a moment for moderating this problem as we are ever going to have. Well, okay. Very, very excellent. Thank you to Clay. That was a thorough and detailed explanation. It doesn't get more down the middle I, than that. I know, and I 100% agree. One thing that neither of, of us uh, mentioned was, that should be mentioned, is that Richard Nixon, who was a very conservative Republican despite his crimes, um, and is, is still celebrated in a lot of conservative circles as being, um, you know, an ideological conservative. Are, are you saying you could be, you could, if you're a criminal, you can't be a Republican? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I bought in. I bought in, Justin. So, um, yeah, no, it. but Welcome. Nixon, um, yeah, <laughs> Nixon um, is the one who opened uh, China up to trade. Um, and, yeah. you know, we have everyone's Monday morning quarterbacking now, but um, the it was under the, the idea uh, that 
China was going to moderate and it was going to be a moderate democracy, which never really happened. I mean, this was a very long time ago. This was in the 70s. Yeah, it was much more hopeful. So, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Once again, the Republicans love to complain about things that Republicans started. <laughs> <laughs> it's that Republican. It's a little different. Right. I guess so. So uh, we get weekly feedback uh, from a few of our listeners. And uh, the following comment comes from one of them and was submitted directly to you. Justin, so uh, why don't you read it for us? Uh, The message to me read, partly, Riz is incorrect that the woke problems aren't as bad as people think. I have friends and family who work in corporations that effectively grade wokeness, and if you don't buy into what they are pushing, your career suffers. The NASDAQ itself is discussing similar measures, potentially banning companies from even trading on the NASDAQ if they don't demonstrate a certain level of wokeness. In fact, the reaction to this wokeness is so widespread It's part of the reason why Trump got the second most votes in U.S. history and conservatives did very well at the local level. Discuss. Okay, so this is interesting. And Justin and I immediately engaged in conversation about this. Uh, As you all know, we both live in Los Angeles, which I think we can all agree is likely an an Mm -hmm. epicenter of uh, America's woke movement. Right. You know, Portland, Seattle, you know, but but L.A. has got to be one of them. Right. And I was talking to to Justin about how, you know. I work in the legal industry and I have interaction with hundreds of attorneys in Los Angeles and in fact nationwide on a yearly basis. And I personally have found all of them to be uh, generally in the same camp as me and my friends are in, which is Trump hating moderates, if you will, who have not a single regard for political correctness or overly sensitive bullcrap. Like they're as foul mouthed and indecent generally as me uh, and all of my friends when we get together for Korean barbecue. And so I, I always put this sort of mass wokeism thing in the category of conservative fan fiction. In other words, it's a perverse fantasy of the right, something they wish was overwhelmingly overwhelmingly pervasive, but actually isn't. And uh, it's sort of the same thing as the right-wing idea we hear all the time that our public education system is teaching kids to, quote, hate America. They always say that. The schools are teaching kids to hate America. As I've said before, my kids go to elementary school in West Los Angeles, which I have to assume is one of the more liberal environments in the country. They are made to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. I have not heard of a single example of teachers trying to brainwash the kids into thinking that gender is a social construct uh they have a boys bathroom and a girls bathroom and is the wah taking a knee yet (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) not yet yeah and there's not even a transgender bathroom at their school so there you go so i put this sort of thing in the same category conservative fan fiction a figment of the right-wing imagination just like to be fair just like conservatives in america have a a nazi flag secretly under their bed is liberal fan fiction and a figment of left-wing imagination. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of left-wingers want to think that all conservatives are secretly racist or, or you know, uh, right. Nazis. You know, because honestly, if it's not happening in West Los Angeles, where the hell is it happening? Wyoming? It just, it just doesn't add up. But uh, with that said, I realize that I'm not exactly in a corporate environment every day. And after we got this comment, I thought to myself that maybe I'm just out of touch. So, you know, maybe I have little perspective on this because I don't work in an overtly corporate environment. So I asked Justin because he works in maybe a slightly Slightly. more corporate environment than I do slightly. And he's in the entertainment industry. So if wokeism is happening, I would think it's probably happening in his office, right? 
But he explained to me that his job is sort of an outlier in terms of the entertainment industry. So he doesn't, uh, you know, he said that he doesn't encounter this kind of wokeism in his everyday employment. Am I right? So then I decided that I'd call editor-in-chief Clay Cogman because Clay is an attorney himself who probably works in a more corporate environment than either of us. I was reminded of a story that, that Clay was telling me recently about a prestigious law firm he works with where under everyone's email signature at the firm, they list their preferred pronouns. And I was reminded of the story and thinking to myself that, again, maybe I'm out of touch here, and maybe this kind of woke stuff actually is a common thing in corporate America. So I called Clay, and we had a half-hour discussion about it, of course. Unfortunately, he doesn't feel like he's much help in terms of shedding light on this topic, because um, he was saying that the segment of the legal industry that he's in is so buttoned up and professional that nobody talks about their politics at all. It's just not something that people that people do. So uh, w- while it's true that he's seen wokest sort of things like the preferred pronouns under an email signature, he wouldn't suggest that that in and of itself is indicative of a broader issue here. And one of the things we're always trying to do here at Down the Middle is not engage in the kind of sensationalism that the media tends to engage in. So I did a little research and used the example that this listener gave of the NASDAQ banning companies from trading if they don't demonstrate a certain level of wokeness. And I found an article about it in the Wall Street Journal titled NASDAQ to Advance Diversity Through New Proposed Listing Requirements. The article goes on to say, in summary, NASDAQ filed a proposal with the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission, SEC, uh, to adopt new listing rules related to board diversity and disclosure. If approved, so if approved by the SEC, The new listing rules would require all companies listed on NASDAQ's U.S. exchange to publicly disclose consistent, transparent diversity statistics regarding their board of directors. Additionally, the rules will require most NASDAQ-listed companies to have or explain why they do not have at least two diverse directors, including one who self-identifies as female and one who self-identifies either as an underreported or underrepresented minority or LGBTQ+. Foreign companies and smaller reporting companies uh, would have additional flexibility in satisfying this requirement with two female directors. The goal of the proposal is to provide stakeholders with a better understanding of the company's current board composition and enhance investor confidence that all listed companies are considering diversity in the context of selecting directors, either by including at least two diverse directors on their boards or by explaining their rationale for not meeting that objective. Now, here's the thing, Justin. You and I hate this stuff. We we have been very vocal on this show about how much yeah. we hate this stuff. We both believe that America is a meritocracy in which a person's race, color, sex, or sexual orientation shouldn't mean mm-hmm. a single thing when it comes to who is qualified for a position Absolutely. in yep. the workforce, right? Moreover, we both don't think that private companies should be forced by mm-hmm. government gun to have to staff their company the way a group of government bureaucrats thinks they should. But I think the larger question here is how dangerous is this kind of stuff really? Is it doing actual damage 
to the fabric of the country, or is it simply a well-intentioned strategy to help groups who have been historically marginalized get a leg up? Because what Clay and I were saying in our conversation is that if the NASDAQ said they they won't be in business with a company that was blatantly engaging in racist or homophobic behavior. Like if a publicly traded company said they don't do business with people of color Mm -hmm. or something, then that would be totally acceptable for NASDAQ to bar that company from trading with them. But these diversity requirements do indeed, I'll be honest, they rub me the wrong way. And I do believe they're un-American, but I'm still unconvinced that this is a serious and pervasive problem In corporate America. So if you're a listener out there, I guess we could file this under the I don't know section of the show. If you're a listener out there who has experienced this kind of stuff firsthand, please tell us about it. Perhaps we'll share your story on air if we get enough responses and not just, you know, anecdotal examples. Uh, Justin, want to add anything? Yeah, look, I think, you know, you ask, is this an actual pervasive problem? Does it move the needle at all? I think most of it doesn't. When companies institute these things with, I think, except for the the Nasdaq thing aside, when companies institute, you know, the the pronouns at the end of the email, it's more of a pain in the butt than anything else. Yeah. However, I do think the Nasdaq proposal, for example, is ridiculous. It does harm the person who's more qualified than the woman or person or, or person of the minority who would get this job normally. I think that's the point the listener's trying to make right. here. I also think he's right about the voting states he mentioned. The reason is because the majority of America doesn't want to be represented by woke values. And the Republicans have used that information to their advantage and effectively fear-mongered their way to those statistics. But I also think it points to the ridiculous lengths these corporations go to in order to appear woke unnecessarily. I mean, we've, we've, as you said, we've covered this ad nauseum. We don't have to go over it again. But I do think it can be harmful in, in, in this particular example because it is glossing over, uh, people who, like we said in Biden's cabinet, that, you know, they're, it's identity politics. They're putting them in there just because they're people of right. color or because they're women, not necessarily because they're qualified. Right. And we both, both you and me, we, we reject yes. identity politics. And we've made that very clear on this show. Uh, not to mention the fact that both of us have um, friends that are people of color. Um, and I haven't met a single one that no. likes this kind of stuff yeah. either. In fact, in fact, a lot of them feel insulted yeah. by this kind of thing. Um, so I don't know who likes it other than maybe rich white women. <laughs> but um, I guess, you know, we want to hear from you if you have these kind of stories, because I think it's interesting. So before we get off the topic of wokeness, there was a big, big story in conservative America. Feels like feels ago. like a year ago. And uh, it's outdated. I know it's outdated at this point, but I had to bring it up. I mean, this was like the moon landing in terms of significance. Now, I'm teasing Justin, of course, because we've already privately had a rather heated debate on this topic. So here's the thing. Missouri Congressman Emanuel Cleaver said the opening prayer for the 117th Congress. And after the prayer, rather than just saying amen or amen, uh, he said amen and a woman. Now, I personally have not seen conservative America and the pundit class erupt in this level of outrage since Bill Clinton was getting blowies in the Oval Office. I mean, they they were pissed. So before we go any further, let's listen to what it sounded like in case you missed it. We ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names, by many different faiths. Amen. And a woman. 
Okay. Now, it should be noted that Cleaver told TV station KCTV5 a few days later his A Woman line was just a lighthearted pun considering the record number of women in Congress. However, my good buddy Justin is, to my surprise, one of those people who was kind of upset about this, along with uh, some other things that happened in the opening ceremony of the 117th Congress. So in an effort to be fair and balanced, let's give him the chair to do a little mini rant about it. Justin, rant away. So first things first, this dude needs to go back to seminary. Brahma, the reverend picks Hinduism and whatever else he said to represent the first session of Congress. Listeners, go back and listen to our last episode of the year. I don't know what else to say other than that. We can't be all things to all people, and there's something to be said about tradition and principles. So first, he commits idolatry, and then he succumbs to just complete lunacy. It was inappropriate. Even if it was a joke or a pun or whatever ridiculous excuse he made after the fact, what are you doing making a joke at the opening of the new congressional session when our country is in severe crisis? We didn't even know just how severe at the time. Does that sound like a fitting tribute to the people who have died from COVID? Does that sound appropriate while we're going through one constitutional crisis after another caused by this president and a pandemic? If it was a joke, he was very wrong to make it. And if it wasn't, he just sounded like a virtue signaling, kente cloth wearing, woke worshiper. And speaking of Kente Kloss, while the congressman was being woke, Speaker Nancy Pelosi was trying to be so woke that we can't call him congressman anymore, or man, at least not officially. So once again, if you didn't see it on C-SPAN, Nancy Pelosi and the House approved and adopted gender-neutral terms in its official language in lieu of gendered language. So seamen changes to seafarers, chairman becomes uh, chair, mother, father, daughter, son, sister, and brother become parent, child, and sibling, and so on and on and on and on and on. Now, this is just more Kente class, and there's no more room for this crap now. We're dealing with real problems. However, this is how Congress chooses to spend my tax dollars. They are representatives of the people, and this is what they choose to focus on, which, by the way, is not what the people want. This is indeed more culture war stuff, but it's now focused inside the House of Representatives, which makes it not culture war stuff. It makes it part of the American constitutional fabric. Shouldn't Congress focus on the president or the pandemic or any other of a trillion other things that are more important? Additionally, we've consistently said that there's a small contingent of people who care about this stuff. And while that may still be the case, if they are the loudest voices in the room and therefore are listened to by people in power, then we have an actual large scale problem, which is just what this speaks to. Mini rant over. (laughs) <laughs> very good okay this response my, my response to that is not directly to you but more to a lot of the more trumpier people who were very upset by this you're outside that category so don't take this personally but as i've said before trump trump republicans have ceded the right to be morally outraged by anything in my opinion especially after what happened last wednesday at the capitol uh, i'll listen to your opinion on this because i think you still have a lot of credibility. I'll listen to Mitt Romney's opinion on it. I'll listen to Jeff Flake's. But listening to someone like Dennis Prager, for instance, do a whole monologue, which he did, about how dangerous and immoral this kind of thing was, while he carried water and apologized for the most immoral and disgusting president in modern history, is not something I'm ever going to do again. We talked about this in uh, you know the first few episodes of the podcast. Remember the Kevin Spacey from American yep. Beauty thing? You don't get to tell me what to do ever again. Trump conservatives, and especially those religious Trump conservatives, have lost their ability to lecture anyone on right and wrong for at least the remainder of my lifetime. 
If you want to talk about tax rates, let's go. If you want to talk about foreign policy, do it. If you want to talk about efficacy of mask mandates, I'm game. If you want to talk about social media censorship, love it. But there is no way in hell I am going to listen to anyone who supported Trump pontificate on traditional morality. Not going to happen. And anyway, uh, at the end of the day, the, the a man and a woman thing was a bad dad joke to me. Like, like whenever there are bagels and locks on the table at my house, like my dad always makes the same joke. I prefer keys. Like it, it's a dumb dad joke. And that's all it was. Nothing less, nothing more. It might, might it have been inappropriate maybe, but again, uh, so is calling a member of Congress, little Adam shit, and inciting an insurrection at the Capitol, which is something the president did. So spare me the pearl clutching Trumpers. As for the other stuff, uh, you know, the Pelosi stuff, you know, I'll I'll give you I'll give you all of that. You know, you know how I feel about Nancy Pelosi. She's an analog player in a digital world, and we'd be better off if she took her dentures and retired to Napa where she could drink expensive wine and eat designer ice cream in front of her $30,000 fridge and nobody would care. That's fantastic. Uh, And before we move on, I literally just got a text message from a, a conservative friend of mine. This mm-hmm. is, a, is a real-time update, right? Amazing. Just came in. This is from Washington Examiner, which is, uh-huh. of course, a right-wing outlet that says, Scoop, uh, a Cupertino, which is in California, Cupertino Elementary School forces third graders to deconstruct their racial and sexual identities, then rank themselves according, according to their power and privilege. So that's the headline. Um, now, this is the point is it's in the Washington Examiner, which has an agenda. It's an anecdotal story. The point mm-hmm. I'm making is that if that is happening, that's it's obviously bad. terrible, right? Yes. But I hear a lot of these kind of anecdotal stories. I hear that kind of stuff all the time. Every person on the right I know has a story of some crazy thing that they're making, usually relating to something they're making kids do in school. Like, Talk about how much America sucks constantly, right? I just personally never see any of that. And I'm in a very liberal environment. I'm not saying it's not happening. Mm-hmm. It just ain't happening where I live. Uh, so I don't know. Again, where is it happening? In Missouri? <laughs> Wyoming. I like Wyoming. <laughs> Wyoming's better, too. <laughs> All right. So uh, moving on, uh, it has now been four weeks since we had a regular episode. And as you probably know, there's been a lot of news and a lot of very important stuff that we need to talk about that happened before the insurrection at the Capitol building last week. So we're going to try to condense the most important parts of it into this segment. Buckle up. This is Turn On The News. Okay, so you know how you just talked about uh, events that were happening besides the insurrection that we're going to cover in the news? Yeah. Let's talk about the insurrection in the news. Okay. So there have been new developments, new things we found out since our last episode. And... uh, <laughs> the armed insurrection that happened at the Capitol building. <laughs> so we had to hit this, obviously. We can't not talk at all about it. So we're going to try yeah. to do as little as possible, though. Fill us in a little bit on some of the details. So there's a great deal of pertinent new info arising from what happened at the Capitol. And no, I'm not talking about the Q Shaman's organic diet. A few points of note. 
An investigation is allegedly underway looking at potentially members of Congress, as quoted by Representative Tim Ryan, a Democrat of Ohio, who gave tours to pro-Trump rioters prior to the insurrection last week. And this is obviously a very serious claim and would hold actual members of Congress part responsible for the events of last week. There's absolutely no confirmation as to whether the investigation is indeed underway or any proof given as to whether members of Congress were at all involved in the insurrection on the Capitol. AOC has, of course, also weighed in on this, citing her fear of being hurt or kidnapped because, quote, of white supremacist members of Congress, end quote, giving away her relocation during the insurrection. In my opinion, without evidence, these claims are a dangerous way of playing politics, but there is an investigation underway, and it would be very bad if we found out that there are some congressmen or Congress people involved in uh, these tours or these attacks. Number two, unfortunately, there has been an outbreak of coronavirus as at least three members of Congress have tested positive for the virus since the lockdown at the Capitol last week. Now, ex-Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund has said in The Washington Post that security officials at the House and Senate denied his early requests to the tune of no less than six times to call on the National Guard ahead of the rally turned insurrection and again as things turned violent. It was also reported that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser wanted a light police presence at the Capitol to avoid a scenario similar to last summer. That number ended up being around 1,400 Capitol Police to an estimated 8,000 rioters. However, Sund is saying that during a conference call with law enforcement officials at 2.26 p.m. on the day of the insurrection, that he did ask the Pentagon to provide backup, at which time senior Army official Lieutenant General Walter Piat, director of the Army staff, said he could not recommend that Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy authorize deployment due to the fact that he didn't, quote, like the visual of the National Guard standing a police line with the Capitol in the background, end quote. The National Guard arrived three hours after this call. Number four, a 15-year veteran of the U.S. Capitol Police died of a suicide on Saturday, which makes the second death of a Capitol Police officer in the span of three days after Officer Brian Sicknick died last Thursday from injuries sustained the day before at the Capitol. His death is being investigated by the Capitol Police, D.C. Police's Homicide Division, and the Justice Department. Number five, the acting U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, Michael Sherwin, is expecting hundreds of people to face wide-ranging charges from destruction of federal property to murder for the storming of the Capitol. There is also an investigation to find evidence of coordination among some of the rioters. Those charged so far, Jacob Anthony Chansley, Adam Johnson, and Derek Evans. Chansley, of course, is the QAnon shaman seen in numerous photos, and Johnson, a Florida man, I've always wanted to say that in an actual report, is the man photographed carrying the House Speaker's lectern, and Evans, a newly elected member of the West Virginia House of Delegates, streamed his participation live on Facebook. Genius. He has since resigned his seat. They were charged with one count of knowingly entering or remaining in any restricted building or grounds without lawful authority, and one count of violent entry and disorderly conduct on Capitol grounds. Johnson was also charged with theft of government property. At least 13 others have been charged with federal crimes and dozens arrested in connection with the attack. Among them is Richard Barnett, who is the man who infamously sat at House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's desk during the siege. So quite a number of updates since we spoke last. Right. Now, one thing I want to do is play a clip from yesterday of the acting U.S. attorney for D.C., Michael Sherwin, who you mentioned, uh, who is describing the depth of the charges they're looking into. The range of criminal conduct is really, uh, I think, again, unmatched in any type of scenario that we've seen the FBI or the DOJ. We're looking at everything from simple trespass to theft of mail 
to theft of digital devices with inside the Capitol, to assault on local officers, federal officers both outside and inside the Capitol, to the theft of potential national security information or national defense information, to felony murder, and even civil rights excessive force investigations. So just the gamut of cases and criminal conduct we're looking at is really mind-blowing. So uh, for the false equivalence crowd out there who may be trying to draw similarities between the riots at the Capitol and the racial rioting over the summer, it's not particularly close. The latter were politically unaffiliated thugs looking for free shoes. Still bad, still condemnable. Uh, And the former was an insurrection on a U.S. government building that culminated in an unprecedented litany of very serious crimes. So uh, what has Trump's response been to all this? Did we finally hear from him? We certainly did. Oh, boy, did we ever. Yeah. Yeah. In a response to the American people, President Trump expressed absolutely zero regret for his comments last week, just before a mob of people rioted their way inside the Capitol building. Quoted as saying, people thought that what I said was totally, actually, I don't know if you want to do this. <laughs> I can't do, I can't do a good Trump, but people thought that what I said was, was totally appropriate when asked about his role in the siege. Who these people are that he's talking about, we may never actually know. Instead, Trump shifted the blame to politicians' comments during the riots in Portland and Seattle during the BLM protests of this past summer. He later doubled down, saying again that everybody to the T thought it was totally appropriate, much like his perfect, perfect phone calls and conversations <laughs> with Ukrainian President Zelensky. An unbelievable uh, quote from him. I was I was shocked when, when yeah. he made the announcement. Yeah. And uh, just about an hour before we started um, recording this episode, mm-hmm. he did another official statement in the Oval Office, uh, which under any other presidency, would have been probably his best statement he's ever done. It was, yeah. um, he still didn't show any real contrition, but but it was it, presidential. Um, it was what it needed to be probably a week and a half, two weeks ago. And it also felt like a hostage video. Like, it, it I, I have a feeling the FBI is basically like, you need to tamp this stuff down because they have, they have information that we don't, they have a lot of information that, um, a lot of people in government don't have. And I think they were like, this is you have to do this or people mm-hmm. are going to die. So that's what yeah. it felt like to me. He still did not mention Biden. He didn't congratulate him. He didn't say that he was uh, he never actually officially conceded or uh, did any of that stuff. Then he went on to talk about censorship in in Internet, which is was probably the price that they had to pay to get him to, to go on and do it. There's yeah, always, there's always something for in him, it for him, right? There's right a, yeah, he right. always pivots at the end to something that he feels his base is, gonna, is going to uh, react to. Right. So let's talk for a split second about terms you may have heard this week. We've heard impeachment, again, uh, resignation, 25th Amendment, and censure. Now, of course, if by the time you're listening to this, you will know by now that Trump was indeed impeached today. He becomes the first president in history, right? To absolutely, yeah, to be impeached yeah. twice. Yes, and I'll get to that. But let's take a step back. Yeah, let's take a step back because I, I, yeah. I want to talk about all these terms of what yeah. could have happened. A lot of people were talking about the Twenty Fifth Amendment. From the research I've been doing, I really dug into this. The Twenty Fifth Amendment was not designed for this kind of thing. It was really designed for president that is completely incapacitated. Yeah, I mean the the, the language is that is that in case of 
the removal of the president from office or his death or resignation, the vice president shall become president. Um, but it really was meant as a means of last resort, as you said, to remove, remove a president that is either rogue or completely incapacitated. It's not meant right, for like someone Right, like can't who's... take a sip of water. Yeah. Like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, if, if a president had, and these guys are old, so this could always happen. Like, I'm yeah. actually surprised it hasn't. Like, if a president had a massive stroke and, uh, you know, couldn't function or, or, or perform the job at all. So that doesn't really fit. Plus, there was, there was very, there, Mike Pence said he, he wasn't interested in doing that and we would have needed him, right? So, yeah, so what happened, well, even, even beyond that, even if they did invoke the 25th, Trump could have followed up with a letter to Congress right. disputing the move, which then prompts a vote in Congress requiring a two-thirds supermajority, which is 67 senators and 290 House members typically to permanently remove him. So it, it's not so clean as clean cut as some of the articles would, would, have, would have you believe. And, and Pence, as you mentioned in a letter to Speaker Pelosi, said that he did not believe, quote, such a course of action is in the best interest of our nation or consistent with our Constitution, end quote. So I think he was dealing with some constitutional ethics. Um, as you said, this is not really meant for this scenario. Right. So then there's resignation. We all know. I mean, we don't even need to talk about this. We know yeah, Trump not will never resigned. It's, yeah. it's not a thing that's ever going to happen. He's not going to have a Nixon moment. By the way, the statement he made tonight, his official statement from the Oval Office, very, very much felt like a Nixon resignation speech, but he forgot to resign. That's yeah. what it felt like. Yeah. It, it almost, I was almost for a split second, I thought maybe he's going to resign because as I'm listening to it, it was the most sort of somber I've seen him. Mm-hmm. And I thought for a second, maybe this is his resignation, but nah. it didn't happen. Nah. Um, so then there's impeachment. Now I made a point to say this on Instagram today for all those who follow me, Rob underscore lifer. Um, that's L-E-I-F like in Frank, E-R. I made a point to say that impeachment is not just the best method uh, for for something as serious as this. I, I really think the Republicans are stupid for not all going along with this mm-hmm. because there's two scenarios here. If uh, so, the other the other word we should bring up is censure. So censure basically is just like a it's like a, a slap on the wrist, right, Jay? It's a resolution that means nothing. I mean, it doesn't. Right, do it doesn't mean anything, right? Anything, yeah. So, so the, you know, a lot of the Republicans are saying they wanted to censure him, right? But all that really does is it will make the base unhappy, and it will fire up Trump, and he will run again in 2024, and probably be the nominee, and probably lose. That's my theory. That's my yeah. prediction. At yeah, least. yeah. I mean, if you if you watch the West Wing, you want to see it play out. President Bartlett was censured on the West on the West Wing, and it was a stain on his record. But that's about all it did. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I actually think more than a stain, it would really fire up his base to be yeah. more pissed off like that. The Republicans went Probably against right. him, yeah. where whereas with impeachment, there's a lot of nuanced things here. Could he mm-hmm. run again? Could he not? We need to answer those questions. So, yeah. uh, Justin, let us know what you've uh, what you found out in your research. Uh, as we just said today, the U.S. House of Representatives convened in the House chamber and voted to impeach President Donald Trump for an unprecedented second time in a 232 to 197 vote. Yep, the only president in history to be impeached twice. Take that, Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton, and 2019 Donald Trump. It was also the most bipartisan presidential impeachment in American history by exactly five votes, taking the lead from 1998 when five Democrats voted to impeach Bill Clinton. The impeachment resolution charges Trump with a single article, incitement of insurrection. 
Also, FYI, Nancy Pelosi wore the very same outfit that she wore in 2019 when she impeached Trump the first time. Nice. So House Republicans, I think it's important that we say these things out loud, that voted for impeachment are Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, Tom Rice of South Carolina, David Valadeo of California, John Katko of New York, Liz Cheney of Wyoming, Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, Fred Upton and Peter Major of Michigan, and Jamie Herrera Butler and Dan Newhouse, both of Washington. Slow clap. Well done, mm. Republicans, for Great job. doing Great your job. part. Now, however, in the Senate, mm-hmm. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has stated that unless all 100 senators agree to reconvene sooner, the Senate will not agree to a Friday session to enable House Democrats to present articles of impeachment to the Senate. Unless there is unanimous consent from senators, Trump's impeachment trial would not be allowed to begin until 1 p.m. on January 20th, at which time Joe Biden will have already been sworn in as president. Additionally, today he made a statement, McConnell, saying that given the rules, procedures, and Senate precedents that govern presidential impeachment trials, there's simply no chance that a fair or serious trial could conclude before President-elect Biden is sworn in next week. The Senate has held three presidential impeachment trials. They have lasted 83 days, 37 days, and 21 days, respectively. Now, there have been a great many viral tweets and stories about what happens if Trump gets impeached, as we were saying, if the Senate did or does vote to convict and remove Trump from office. He will not immediately lose his ability to run for office after leaving the White House. They would need an additional vote via simple majority following the conviction proceedings in order to disqualify Trump, quote, to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. This has happened to three federal judges in 1862, 1913, and 2010 with Thomas Porches. Additionally, most of the benefits afforded presidents were passed as part of the former President's Act, including a travel allowance and annual lifetime pension. The law says those benefits apply to presidents, quote, whose service in such office shall have terminated other than by removal pursuant to Section 4 of Article 2 of the Constitution. This section spells out clearly that this is only for an impeachment for, and here's the important part, conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So only convicting him would strip him of benefits, and it would require an additional vote in the Senate for him to be banned from running for president. However, all hope is not lost entirely. Michael J. Gerhardt, a law professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, writes that if an impeachment begins when an individual individual is in office, the process may surely continue after they resign or otherwise depart. However, this would not revoke his lifetime pension or travel allowance immediately. It would take this and an additional vote in the Senate, as I said, to ban him from holding public office, which I will most certainly take as a consolation. Not that I think, yeah. honestly, that it's likely to happen. Now, this doesn't come with, without some precedent. In, ni- in 1798, Tennessee Senator William Blount was impeached and tried after being expelled by the Senate. William Belknap, Secretary of War to U- Ulysses S. Grant, resigned in 1876 and was then impeached after and tried for corruption. So we shall see, Rob. We shall see. We shall see. Yeah. I mean, I think the Republicans, if they were smart, they'd get together and figure out how to oust him and get it so they can never that, that so he can never run again, because if they don't do that, he will run again and he yeah. will win. And they're so scared of the base. But here's the thing. I know Trump is popular. If and this is the point I was I was going to make earlier, mm-hmm. if they figure out a way to make it so he is ousted from the party, there will be extreme anger from the base for the next couple years. Right. Yes. But eventually they'll get over it. And by four years from now, when it is 
very likely Kamala Harris D California mm-hmm. running against pick your favorite Republican senator yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. All of those base people who hate the Republican party are going to come home and and vote because they're not going to want Kamala Harris D California. Yeah. They're they're just no, not. No, absolutely not. I right? completely agree and and I, I it's so confusing to me and it's it's a serious bummer to me that that the GOP the 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 classic conservatives even the the ones that sort of were on the trump train have yeah. opportunity after opportunity after yeah. opportunity to I get know. out of the mess and yeah. still are not taking it with you know taking they the olive don't branch. do it's it so because, ridiculous right that they don't do it because trump is still just so popular yeah. and, and that's that's Shocking. just the thing he's he's a phenomenon like that yeah um i think it's like you know sort of like breaking up with a girlfriend you know you just gotta you gotta tear the band-aid off and do it yeah and you gotta I saw and, you gotta be like, like this the trump is the gop's yeah, bad a, girlfriend yeah, he, yeah, yeah. The, the, the gop needs to break up with trump and do the whole speech where it's like we're never getting back together. You, you know, we are, what is it? It's the Taylor Swift thing. Never, ever, ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have to have that talk with him. Yeah. And, you know, eventually it's going to be hard the first couple of weeks. You know, they're going to be in bed stewing over. You, you know, how when you break up with your girlfriend, you, th- you feel like that, that pain is never going away. The ache is never going to, you're the rest of your life. And then like two weeks into it, you're like, hey, I'm not thinking about that as much as I was two weeks ago. And then like two months into it, you have a new girlfriend. Uh, I have been a that's teenager it's in a long be like. time, but uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I remember, yeah. and that's what it's going to be like. And the GOP will have a new girl. They'll have a new kind of figure that they'll lionize within a few months. For sure. Maybe it'll be Nikki Haley, you know, so whoever, just do it. Oust him. Get rid of him. That's all I have to say. Okay, let's move on from this topic. Uh, Another thing we want to go back and talk about is the COVID relief bill debacle, which probably seems like five years ago to you guys at this point. It certainly does to me. But I think it's important, and it's an important thing to talk about here for a minute. Uh, In a very brief summary, Republicans had decided on a $600 per person Stimulus bill, as you may have heard, uh, Trump bunked, bucked his own party, much to Mitch McConnell's frustration, and demanded $2,000 a person, which made the Democrats very happy. Now, this put David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, the two candidates who were running in the Georgia runoff election, in a less than ideal position because they had to choose whether to side with Senate Republicans or the president. And we all know how that story typically ends, don't we, Justin? So uh, we're going to get to the Senate runoff in a minute. Now, I want to make a point here that a lot of the uh, a lot of the rhetoric you may have been seeing on social media about this bill is incorrect. People were conflating, especially on the right, people were conflating the covid relief bill with the omnibus spending bill. These are two separate things. So you may have heard people asking why we're sending all this money to other countries and what that has to do with covid. This became a very big talking point yeah. at that you know a few it's weeks important. ago when this was going on yeah we are indeed spending money in foreign nations and on governmental priorities outside of the united states but many of those expenditures have been in place for decades and pass every single time there's an omnibus spending bill and have absolutely nothing to do with covid why we invest so much money in other countries is a totally different topic one that has been advanced by both republicans and democratic administrations alike including the Trump administration, who specifically asked for most of the expenditures that appeared in the current omnibus bill. So 
we can discuss that another day. In fact, that would be another good topic of the day one of these weeks, why we spend so much money in foreign countries. But for now, when, you're, when your MAGA friends tell you that Democrats are more concerned with gender studies in France than they are with helping the American people, you can tell them that, one, the omnibus bill was separate and apart from the COVID relief bill. Two, both the Republicans and Democrats allocate tax dollars to other countries, and that's a separate issue entirely. And three, it was the Democrats and the president, President Trump, in a rare agreement who wanted more money for Americans in the COVID relief bill, not the Republicans. So what ended up happening? Well, Mitch McConnell, affectionately known as Cocaine Mitch, tried to attach the $2,000 a person relief bill to a bill that also addressed voter integrity and Section 230. This was, of course, before the insurrection, uh, and we'll we'll get to Section 230 in a minute. Uh, This was Mitch's attempt to make it seem like Democrats would buck a relief bill just to deny Trump a win on voter integrity, which was kind of a sly move on Mitch's part, but he's a sly guy. It didn't work. Yeah. In a minute, uh, Justin will tell you, uh, or will tell us, for that matter, about what ended up happening with the bill. But before we get there, I wanted to make one last point on this, and that is that the Democrats failed once again to use a little strategy here. They had Trump openly saying that $600 wasn't enough, and he wanted $2,000 instead. He was saying it all over Twitter. He was saying it in every interview. He wanted $2,000. The people deserve $2,000 after what we've been through, right? Once you get him there, why not make the case that 2000 isn't enough and push for 4000 <laughs> yeah. Now, I know that that may sound unrealistic, but since we're basically printing this money anyway, what's the difference? I mean, why not put Trump on the defensive and get him to say that 4000 is too much and then get him to have to explain why 4000 is too much? Are the American people not worth 4000 for nearly a, a year of the economic agony this pandemic has inflicted? Why is 2000 the magic number? But of course, Democrats missed this opportunity as they often do. I think it would have been really cool if they did that because it would have made it look like the, uh, you know, at least to the American public, like, these people are pushing for more money, and Trump would have had to explain why oh, no, 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 that's too much money. They don't need that much. It would have been a good political position to put him in. Anyway, I'm going to get into what ended up happening in the Senate runoff, and we're going to talk about Section 230 a little later in the pod for a specific reason. But in the meantime, uh, Justin, tell us what happened, what ended up happening with the bill and where it could go from here. So as we know, Trump ended up signing the $2.3 trillion spending omnibus bill into law, thus avoiding a government shutdown, which is another good reason to sign it, and handing billions of dollars in coronavirus aid over to the local governments and the people. Uh, The $900 billion COVID relief package extended unemployment benefits for jobless gig workers and long-term unemployed, a group of people that is estimated at upwards of $12 And yes, the $600 checks that have since been widely disputed by Trump and his party, the Democrats... Oh, wait... Since this legislation passed, there have been flying proposals both from the left and the right. As you said, $2,000 checks, a council to study election issues, thank you, Mitch, restrictions on the closing of businesses, restrictions on proof of vaccines, Department of Workforce Development hours, funding for food and child care. We're essentially back at square zero. Even with the new Democrat-run Senate, Joe Manchin, which we'll get into, stands in the way of Senate Democrats, stating that he will not support the proposal of checks on that amount. So we're nowhere. Yeah, so uh, we're nowhere and we're nothing. 
Thanks, Mitch McConnell. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, next order of business is something that should be getting a lot more attention right now. But due to the events of last week, nobody has really been talking about it or even opining on what it means and how big a deal it is. And that is that the Democrats are going to control the Senate. That means yeah. that the Democrats will have full control of the government for the next two years at least. This was very unexpected. If you go back and listen to our post-election episode, not only were we saying that it was highly unlikely that Dems would win the Senate, but we were also saying that outside of winning the, the presidency, this was a devastating election for Democrats based on House seats and state legislatures they lost. I'd like to retract that statement. I think you should. This ended up, yeah, this ended up being a pretty damn good election for Democrats. And it is 100% due to one man and one woman. The man is Donald Trump, the woman is Stacey Abrams. So there is absolutely no excuse for the Republicans losing these Senate seats in a state like Georgia. Looking at the exit polls, Republicans absolutely bled necessary votes from rural parts of Georgia. And that is a direct response to Trump claiming the election was rigged. People didn't come out. They thought it was rigged. He screwed it up. It had enormous impact on the election, and everyone is is noticing this and saying, how did we let this happen? And congressional Republicans have to be kicking themselves because had they decided to push back on Trump's claim and grow a pair and did a full-throated rejection of the idea that the election was rigged, they may have stood a chance. But as we've seen before... And as we talked about, the Republicans are just so scared of going against Trump. It's really it's crazy. They 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 screwed themselves here. So he lost them. Trump lost them those Senate seats. And from the reporting, it sounds like many of the GOP are done, like they've they've had it at this point. So as if the Trump inspired insurrection wasn't enough, unnecessarily handing full control of the government yeah. over to the Democrats is an absolute five alarm fire for the GOP that could have been avoided. Now, from the Democrats perspective, all credit goes to Stacey Abrams, the most, you know, the, the she's she's a, a Democratic politician and former uh, gubernatorial candidate. Uh, turned voting rights activist who lives who's in Georgia. Uh, it seems as though, according to the exit poll data, Georgia is one of the few states where Dems didn't bleed minority support like we've been mm -hmm. talking about and like they have in so many other states. This is 100 percent due to the on the ground organizational skills of Stacey Abrams. And what can I say? Biden should put her in control of the vaccine distribution <laughs> because she's obviously a uh, miracle worker. Now, Jay. Uh, let's talk for a minute about what it means that the Dems have full control of the U.S. government and save the uh, the talk on Joe Manchin, because we'll get to that in a minute. No, I mean, look, this mean this is this is the nightmare scenario for the GOP. This is exactly what they did not want to or I say we did not. I did not want this to happen. Um, the ability now for for Joe Biden and Joe Biden's administration to pass legislation it's essentially a, a, a decently clear runway. His picks for his cabinet, uh, the legislative agenda, these things that are so important to his administration now have a... The Republicans have no say Now have a clear it, path. Yeah. And it's a very, yep. very, very daunting thing for the Republicans um, in both chambers of Congress to get in, the way, get in the way of anything. 
Right. So, you know, what many on the right are worried about are a few major mm-hmm. things. Okay. Number one, and we've talked about this, it's eliminating the filibuster. Yep. Number two is statehood for DC and perhaps Puerto mm-hmm. Rico. And number three is stacking the Supreme Court. So I have my doubts that any of that will happen. I'm still banking on an extremely light legislative footprint for this administration for a couple reasons. I think Biden is keenly aware of the divisiveness going on in the country and realizes that any any further push to the left is going to set a bomb off in an already severely fractured mm-hmm. nation. I think the first two years of his term are going to be focused almost exclusively on fighting COVID and putting some kind of band-aid on the economic damage that's going to be it's going to become more and more apparent as government assistance, you know, dries up. As I've said before, I think there's a better chance Uh, with Democrats having full control of the government, that we get more assistance and we get it for longer. And that's a good thing, at least for me. I'm sure we can look forward to hyperbolic reactions from the Republicans. Uh, Again, you know, when Democrats seek to spend money, Republicans all of a sudden become very fiscally responsible once Democrats are in charge. Uh, I think there's, there's a chance we'll see a public option in healthcare, perhaps. But ultimately... All this stuff takes a lot of time, and I think COVID is going to keep this administration very busy for the next year or or more. And by 2022, when the midterms come, I highly suspect, and you could hold me to this, that the Republicans will win back the Mm -hmm. House. That's my that's that's my prediction. Uh, And that's because that's almost always how statistically the party in power is. is, It's a referendum on the party in power, and when the party has full power, doesn't last for Mm -hmm. long. It's very rare. So remember that the Senate is now 50-50. 50 Dems, 50 Republicans, and Kamala Harris breaks the tie. Okay, that's why they have the advantage. So that's a razor slim margin right there. It's not overwhelming. It's not an overwhelming majority. It requires the VP to break the tie. So this makes Joe Manchin, Senator of West Virginia, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps the most powerful man in the Senate, honestly. Now, Manchin is a moderate, but he's actually more like a right-leaning Democrat. Uh, he's, He's kind of a Senate institutionalist, if you will. He is the senator somehow of the most Trump loyal state in the country. So he's basically a Republican in many ways. He voted with Trump more than any other Democratic senator. He's not going to vote to get rid of the filibuster or pack Agreed. the court. He's just yeah. not. So the Democrats know this. So I think that also gives a good excuse for Biden to not push so mm-hmm. hard. And I think having Manchin there should set conservative minds at ease that nothing super crazy yeah, is going to happen. It does. Uh, right. There, there's also, there also is a lot of talk, and this is, this is underground, mm-hmm. but I've, I've been seeing a lot of talk about Manchin having at least some interest in moving over to the Republicans. Mm -hmm. Uh, If he wants to stay in power, that very well might have to happen for him. And that brings up Susan Murkowski, Senator of Alaska, who is kind of the op- in the opposite mm-hmm. boat. Uh, she is a left-leaning Republican senator. Uh, she has said that Trump needs to be removed after the insurrection, and she has also made a comment that it would be very hard for her to continue to back the Republican Party if removing Trump doesn't get overwhelming support. So there's also talk on the street that Murkowski might be moving over to the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So obviously that would even things out. So razor thin margins and some very interesting stuff. It's very interesting. And look, while while some of these things pose a problem for either party, I don't think it's a dilemma at all for the country. I think it's fantastic. 
it pushes our yeah. country towards moderation. If the center holds the sway. It's this, the center has a sway vote. That's fantastic. Yep. I think that that's a you know pretty extraordinary thing to have happened. I think it's a good outcome too. So we'll see. Um, the bottom line here is that the Republicans didn't need to lose no. the Senate. This is their own mm-hmm. fault. Um, lots of blame yep. to go around. And as if the country isn't embroiled in a large enough nightmare mess dumpster fire, you can always count on Arizona to say, hold my beer, or at least to double down yeah. on it. The Arizona Grand Ole Party will vote January 23rd on a resolution to censure Cindy McCain for publicly endorsing President-elect Joe Biden, a Democrat. The Maricopa County GOP, for which we owe oh so much of the election debacle to, has already voted and passed a resolution to censure the widow of former Arizona Senator John McCain. Cindy McCain, bless her, tweeted that she is, quote, a proud lifelong Republican and will continue to support candidates who put country over party and stand for the rule of law. In a bizarre video released on January 8th, yes, mere days after the insurrection at the Capitol, Arizona Republican Party chairwoman Kelly Ward is seen saying, quote, he is with us. He loves the United <laughs> States of America, and he loves the American people, have no doubt. And later added, what an amazing president we have. Kelly Ward is out of her mind. Yeah, I think she woke up from a coma or something. Yeah. <laughs> So McCain isn't the only one to come under the wrath of the Arizona GOP. Added to the censure vote is Arizona's sitting governor, Doug Ducey, a Republican, and the state's last Republican U.S. Senator, Jeff Flake, not even still not even a senator anymore. Additionally, Ducey, the Arizona Republican governor, after defending Arizona's voting process, was called out by Kelly Ward, telling him to, quote, shut the hell up. While Ducey condemned the violence at the Capitol, Ward attended a protect the vote rally, continuing to ask questions about the validity of the election results. So Arizona is perhaps the first example of what we're going to be seeing within the GOP nationwide, because this is all after the chair of the Republican National Committee urged the state GOP not to censure McCain. RNC Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel said in a statement that, quote, the language in this resolution is abhorrent. My hope is that the Arizona Republican Party will not entertain it. This does nothing to grow a party or put us in a better position to win in 2022. If this kind of sentiment becomes pervasive, the GOP may be in for some bumpy roads up ahead. I'm not looking forward to it. Additionally, this is interesting because it has the GOP doing something that they are railing at the left from doing. Right. Right. Cancel. Cancel cancel culture. culture. That's what I'm getting at. Right. Which is just (laughs) insane that the right after, you know, you know, today and yesterday and last week are freaking out about cancel culture. But here in Arizona, you have them utilizing it. Right. The right is under some weird impression that the Democrat, I hear them say this all the time, Democrats are so much better because they stick together. They stick together and we're too fractured, which is actually not true. There is there is tremendous internecine warfare uh, in the Democratic Party as well. Um, So uh, and by the way, the Republicans still, even with losing, are still better at politics than Democrats ever will be. So there you go. That was very interesting. I didn't know any of that stuff about going on in Arizona. Very cool. Um, so let's move on to something fun now. The holiday season is officially behind us. And I'm sure some of you, even though technically you weren't supposed to because of the pandemic, I'm sure some of you got together with some of your relatives. And if you have relatives, you probably have an Uncle Earl. Now, Uncle Earl watches a little too much Alex Jones and probably spends a little too much time on underground right wing conspiracy sites. But some of Uncle Earl's theories have indeed become mainstream thought on today's political right. So, you know, speaking of Arizona, geez. So we thought it would be cool if we act out for you a scenario in which you're forced to hang out for an afternoon with your Uncle Earl 
at a family function and you don't feel like you necessarily have the tools to push back on his narrative. This should give you a little lesson, if you will, in how you could do that if you were so inclined. So some of the, you know, you might not want to do that at all. You might just want to sit down and watch a movie and not talk about Oh, this about could be politics, therapy for you. You can, you can live through it, it anyway. Exactly. So some of the things you'll hear in this discussion are talking points that typically get thrown at you when you're having a political discussion with a Trump supporter in general. Uh, this is a new segment, and the segment is called Conversations with Uncle Earl. Hi, Uncle Earl. Can you believe what congressional Republicans tried to do to subvert the will of the people by refusing to accept the outcome of this election? Uh, yes, I can believe it. This election was stolen. Oh, Uncle Earl, actually it wasn't. 59 out of the 60 court cases that were brought by the Trump administration were thrown out due to lack of substantial evidence. Many of the judges who ruled on those cases were Trump appointees. Even the Supreme Court, arguably the most conservative court in generations, refused to take up the case due to lack of standing. Further, Trump's own officials have dismissed election fraud claims and remain steadfast in denying that votes in this election were tampered with in any oh. way. The Democrats deserve everything that's coming to them. After all, they never accepted Trump's election in 2016 either. Well, no, Uncle Earl. That's not exactly correct. Many voters in the Democratic base refused to accept Trump as the president. Hashtag not my president was quite a popular phrase in my neck of the woods. I wouldn't have a problem with the Republican base doing the same. I mean, it's a free country. Nobody will force you to accept Joe Biden as your president if you don't want to, even though, as Trump voters were always apt to point out, he will be your president whether you like it or not. But this is different, Uncle Earl. In 2016, Hillary Clinton conceded to Donald Trump a day after the election Barack Obama had Trump in the Oval Office a few weeks later and assured him the transition would be smooth and that he'd do everything he could to make sure he was successful. He even said that if Trump succeeds, America succeeds. Trump succeeds, America succeeds. Trump even called Obama a great man that day. Uh, there was never an effort by Democrats in the Senate nor the Congress to overturn the election, despite concerns that foreign countries may have influenced the election. Well, yeah. And then the Democrats launched a two-year-long investigation into Trump in an attempt to perform a coup and remove him from office. Well, <laughs> no, Uncle Earl. The Democrats didn't launch anything. They were certainly concerned about Russian influence into the election. But remember... That Democrats had no power for the first two years of Trump's presidency. Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate. It was actually Republican John McCain that brought the highly controversial Steele dossier to the FBI on the recommendation of Republican Lindsey Graham. It was then Trump's own attorney general, Jeff Sessions, the very first supporter of Donald Trump, who recused himself from the investigation and allowed another Republican, Rod Rosenstein, to appoint a special counsel to investigate foreign influence into the 2016 election. Further, we had Donald Trump on tape asking Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's emails as well as him praising WikiLeaks, a Russian propaganda outfit, so the investigation was certainly warranted. Yeah, and that investigation found absolutely nothing. Trump was completely exonerated. Well, Uncle Earl, have you actually read the Mueller report? I haven't either, but Rob Leifer from the Down the Middle podcast has both parts, all 448 pages of it. Took him three weeks, actually. 
Part one of the report outlines all the ways in which the Trump team was willing to accept help from foreign adversaries and all the various crimes that Trump team members committed in the process. In fact, the investigation garnered 199 criminal charges, 37 indictments or guilty pleas, and five prison sentences. That's a whole lot of nothing to find, Uncle Earl. Further, part one of the report outlined inappropriate behavior on the part of Donald Trump himself, a lot of which wasn't necessarily criminal, but in many cases, or many instances, could have been impeachable. Part two of the report laid out all the ways in which Trump obstructed justice by trying to get the report shut down. Many conservative pundits called the whole fiasco deeply embarrassing for the president and said it showed a willingness on his part to commit criminal acts, even though the report didn't find any provable criminal conduct on the part of Trump himself. Remember, Uncle Earl, corruption doesn't always equal criminality. Trump is most certainly deeply corrupt, and Robert Mueller proves this in his report. Yeah, yeah, but Robert Mueller's just part of the deep state. They're all out to get our President Trump. This is where I end the conversation, Uncle Earl. Let's have a beer and watch the game. Okay, we hope you like that segment, give you a little comedy there, and hopefully give you a little education as well on how to uh, approach your Uncle Earl when he starts flinging conspiracy theories at you, right? I don't know anyone with an Uncle Earl. I mean, at least not the name. <laughs> Lots of Uncle yeah. Earls. Uncle I, know Earl no one, I know no one named Earl. I know. Well, you know, I don't know why. Earl, Earl just seemed like an appropriate name. Right. Well, now he's yeah. named. I can't go back on it. Exactly. Okay. So a couple more things. We have to talk a little bit about the elephant that's been in the room for the last couple of months, and that is the rapidly rising COVID-19 disaster. Um, Justin and I are both in L.A., which is the epicenter, I believe, of the entire world for cases right now, certainly in the country. I, I think it is the ep- mo- the, the most uh, cases per capita in the world right yeah. now. It's a dire situation. Uh, ICU bed capacity is officially at zero percent. So pray that you don't have a heart attack. Now, uh, getting an ambulance to come find you is taking sometimes hours, according to a report from Fox L.A. It's a state that is literally in one of the most severe crises in the state its history. And as you know, California is no stranger to natural disasters or crises. Um, But officials are saying that this one really does take the cake. Someone is dying in Los Angeles now from COVID every eight minutes. So it's really sad. But with that said, as anyone who's up on this stuff knows, California and LA in particular has had the most draconian anti-COVID measures of any other place in the country, arguably. Uh, Our schools never reopened. There's only a few counties in the country that never opened schools. We never opened, uh, ever. Uh, The entire economy has essentially been shut down since the whole thing started. I mean, uh, even over the summer, when cases went down, we never really reopened anything. Restaurants never had indoor, uh, they, they never had indoor seating. They had outdoor seating for a while. And then that was, that was, that was canned. So, uh, things like gyms and salons never opened, uh, since the mm-hmm. beginning, I'm saying like it never really ebbed here. So it's just a nightmare of extreme and frankly, controversial health measures that this state and the city has taken. And that's leading a lot of people to say, you know, where the hell did it get us? What was all this sacrifice for when we now have a bigger problem than any city in, say, the state of Florida that didn't destroy their entire economy? And now the state of California, in true state of California fashion, is screwing up the vaccine distribution. 
We are ranked uh, 48 out of the 50 states as of today in terms of the percentage of population that has been vaccinated. They're getting a lot of flack for that. Obviously, California is a a very big state with a lot going on in it and a lot of different kinds of population. So it's a hard state to navigate. But uh, even the experts are saying there is no excuse for the fact that uh, they've had this incredible surge crisis. And now on top of that, a crisis of, of organization when it comes to getting the vaccine out. What I will say is that if you're a liberal like me and you believe in liberal governance, it is okay for you to ask why. You don't have to be shy about that. Why did this happen? And I think this is a topic that is going to be studied for a generation or more because once the dust settles and the pandemic is over and all the data is in, not just health data, but economic data and how many jobs were lost and how many people committed suicide, et cetera, the big questions are going to be one, did we have to do this in this way? And two, who did it best? For instance, Ron DeSantis, who I personally don't like and who the media certainly doesn't like because he's he's pretty Trumpy, uh, he decided to take a much different course for this whole thing. And he's got a state with a lot of inherent issues for a pandemic as well. Justin knows this firsthand because he's from Florida. That's right. Uh, d- densely populated cities, a lot of elderly, a huge party beach community with yep. kids that are very hard to tamp that down. Weather where people are constantly getting together. They don't have the the, the luxury of getting people inside because the weather is always warm there. Florida is a complex state, and he has been demonized by the media for not doing enough. His whole philosophy from the beginning, and I know I'll take flack from liberals by saying this, but I don't care. His whole philosophy was, you know, I trust the citizens of my state to be responsible. We're going to isolate the elderly and the sick put most of our resources into nursing homes and protecting them, and then basically encourage people to be safe but go about their lives. And Florida doesn't just have a pretty decent record on the number of elderly that has died compared to other states like New York and California, Mm -hmm. but Florida has a pretty solid economic record right now, according to the data. And California has a problem that's tenfold the problems in Florida. Uh, All this to give you my theory on the whole thing, Jay. Uh, There is something to be said about getting people to do what's best for them and the community by not bogging them down with rules that frustrate them and destroy their lives. Mm -hmm. So there are measures that were taken in the state of California that cause an immense amount of COVID fatigue. I'm one of those people who's experienced COVID fatigue, right? Absolutely. So by the time the holidays and the end of the year rolled around, I think a lot of people were literally like, F this. I'm taking my mask off Mm -hmm. and doing what I want at Mm -hmm. this point. I'm done. Right. Despite government officials telling them not to travel and whatnot over the holidays. Whereas if you lived in an area where the restrictions were less exhausting and not so all consuming, Mm -hmm. when Christmas rolls around and the government officials are telling you not to travel, you probably are more inclined to listen because you're not as fatigued. You're living living your everyday life. I think the breaking point really came in in California when they closed the outdoor dining and people couldn't go out and just have a meal and pretend they're a regular human for five minutes. Right. And that mixed with the, with the three holidays in a row, Halloween, yes. mm-hmm. the, then, then uh, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas. Christmas and New Year's four in yeah. a row, really. Yeah. But you know, it, it's sort of like if, if I bug my kids every single day to clean up the room, they're going to do a bad job at it. If I bug them once a week, it's actually easier to get them to do what I want them to do yeah. because 
they're not so inundated with being bugged all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, with all that said, the data will need to be studied for many years, and there will certainly be a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking in terms of what was the right thing to do for each state. But this brings up a very libertarian sort of discussion, which is the topic of externalities. I'm just going to take a second. We're not going to get fully into it. Externalities, very simply, are consequences or side effects of something that affect the community unwillingly. For instance, smoking cigarettes in restaurants has been banned in most states because it creates externalities for the community. Not wearing a mask during a deadly pandemic in a public place creates externalities for the community. So next episode, we are going to do a topic of the day on some of my personal libertarian-leaning policies that I support, which include legalization or decriminalization of all drugs, uh, decriminalization of prostitution, and a bunch of other stuff. And I think I have some compelling reasons for why I take the positions I do on those issues, and we'll discuss it, so look forward to that. Anything else to say about that? No, look, I, I think it's getting very interesting to see how uh, a place like Florida, who could basically be completely open for business, and a place like uh, Los Angeles, California, that is essentially closed for business, yeah. can both have these two completely uh, opposite uh, ways of attacking the virus and have mm -hmm. essentially very similar or the similar same outcomes. numbers. Yeah. It, it's pretty yeah. stunning. And um, the consequences of which in California is that Governor Newsom now has a million votes yeah. to recall him, and it only mm -hmm. takes another half a million before it triggers a special election to actually yeah. put him in the hot seat. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's recompense for this, and we'll see what happens with it. It's Like I said, it's going to take years, but yeah. we will get the full data. Once everything is analyzed, it's going to take a long time. We're going to find out what the right thing was to do. Yeah, you know what the right thing was to do for mm -hmm. vaccine rollout uh, anyway? <laughs> Private sector, but, man. Government. Right. Well, there you go. The government sucks at stuff. I'd rather my tax yep. dollars go to pay private sector companies to roll something massive like this out than pay yeah. government employees to, to do literally anything. I'd rather do that any day. Well, well, and I'm also talking about the actual measures that were yes. taken to, yeah. Lockdowns to, and that to kind curb of the virus. Uh -huh. Were they effective at all? Yeah. Because a lot of people are saying, especially on the right, you hear a lot of people saying, I don't think lockdowns did anything. I think it actually yeah. made it worse because the second you unlock down, everyone just spreads the they virus. Freak out. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, so uh, you know, I, I'm just not altogether sure. Now, that has to be studied also with with the fact in mind that, like I said, in California, there's zero percent mm -hmm. ICU beds. Mm -hmm. So. What is the state supposed to do when they have this severe problem? Yeah, you know, it's it's a very tricky thing. All I'm saying is that the bottom line, the reason I wanted to throw this in there is I want you guys to to be okay with questioning something that might be on your team very and good. saying, mm -hmm. you know, the other side did this differently. We need to look at the data and see if it was altogether wrong, because yeah. maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't. For all the demonization people got for letting their states uh, stay open, maybe that wasn't the worst idea. So mm -hmm. we're going to have to see. I agree. And I, and I think just to, to close that out, I think it's important to note that this this virus was politicized a, a great deal. And I think that there are certain things that are for politicization and there are certain things that are for coming together as Americans and, and tackling a crisis together all, all, all at the same time. And fortunately, we had this president in office, and that wasn't possible for us. But when you're taking the perspective that you're suggesting people do, it's as an American to say, we need to question our government, not mm -hmm. Republican government, not Democratic government, 
our government to see if this is the right thing that they did for our state, for our county, and for our country. Right, right. Very, very true. I, I should also note that, you know, it's another problem of the media. You know, this the, the problem is crazy bad here with COVID mm-hmm. in, in LA, but I have my mother calling me because all she hears is the news and yeah. how there's Same. nothing, you, you know, the, mm-hmm. it's just out of control. There's an interactive map uh, that you could look at on on like one of the local news stations that shows that the problem is really bad in the areas you would expect in low income areas Mm -hmm. where the the people are living on top of each other and they're going to work a lot more than they are in say the the brentwood or Mm -hmm. you know beverly hills where they're staying inside all day and that adds the problem because again la is such a sprawling huge community East LA in and of itself is like twice the size of Boston. Mm-hmm. So, and like everyone in that community has the virus. Yeah. So when you have such a big landmass of people that have it, 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 it's not that it artificially inflates the numbers. It's just without all of that perspective, you're not necessarily getting the full. Yeah, you need context. You need the context. Right. Sure. You need the context. Right. So we can look forward to analyzing all of the data on COVID when this godforsaken virus is finally over and we all have our vaccines. Now, speaking of things you guys should look forward to, we have a big announcement. We are still reeling from the events of January 6th. Those events will reverberate for some time and influence in large part the discussions we are going to have moving forward. The assault on the Capitol was such a seismic event that we called off our planned episode last week to address it exclusively. Now, with that said, The one thing you haven't heard us talk about on this episode, and you might be wondering why, especially if you're very up on politics, is the exploding topic of social media censorship that started with the official booting of Trump off of Twitter and Facebook a few days ago, apparently indefinitely, uh, followed by a crackdown on other specific right-wing content that some people are claiming is more egregious. Now, if you're a fan of this show, you know that Justin and I have agreed that this issue is going to be one of the premier issues of the of this generation, uh, the topic of information and tech industry power over it and First Amendment issues and antitrust law. And everyone is digging in faster than either of us thought. I mean, yeah. it's becoming we were predicting a few years like it's here now <laughs> yeah, today. It certainly right? <laughs> so we decided that. For an issue that will likely be as ongoing as this, we couldn't just put it in a topic of the day. This kind of topic deserved its own platform where we call a time out from our usual banter and our usual format and and have to have an extended discussion about the really big issues. So big announcement. Our media company, the Intermediary Network, is officially launching a second podcast called The Big Stuff. It's not going to be a weekly thing or perhaps even a monthly thing. It will be a podcast that will pop up on your feed whenever there is a big, broad, and complex topic for us to break down that can't be done in a topic of the day. And of course, we will always let you know when one is coming on this podcast down the middle. Next week on episode one of The Big Stuff, Justin, myself, Editor-in-Chief Clay Cogman, and as we mentioned at the front of the podcast, a very special fourth guest will be joining us to discuss this very important issue along with Section 230, which I mentioned earlier in the show. I didn't want you guys to think I forgot about that. Uh, And because this is episode one of the new podcast, it will be in lieu of a down the middle podcast just this time so you don't have to absorb two pods next week. 
So there will be no Down the Middle podcast next week, and instead we will direct you to the Big Stuff podcast, which we will promote and remind you about throughout the week. Yeah, and look, it's 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 not going to be um, structured or as structured as this podcast. It's going to be conversational. It's going to be in, in an environment that's much that's far. It's it's more like a panel discussion. It's going to be formatted much like a panel. Right. And uh, and it's going to be a, a very discussion oriented. We're going to bring on some special guests for each episode, different people, so that we have new blood in the seat that uh, you know represent different demographics and different perspectives. And we're going to open you guys up to those as well. And we're looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. All right, guys. So we did a lot on this episode, but no episode would be complete without a topic of the day. And we've got an interesting one for you this week that will keep you deep in thought and maybe even wide awake while your significant other rests soundly beside you. <laughs> uh, this is the topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Topic of the day. It's the topic of the day. Okay, so in our last episode of 2020, I referenced the final speech Barack Obama gave as president where he suggested that the politics of racial resentment fueled by a growing immigration crisis was misguided and that it wasn't going to continue to be illegal immigration that will affect the job market. It will rather be a combination of globalization and automation and that this will require some outside-the-box thinking to come up with solutions for. So on our last topic of the day of 2020, we put a focus on globalization. We obviously continued that conversation at the beginning of this episode by answering a listener question. On this topic of the day, we're going to talk a little bit about automation. Now, of the 2,876 Democratic candidates that decided <laughs> to run for the presidency in 2020, uh, there was only one who caught my eye. Uh, you guys don't know this because this before we had a pod. Uh, and uh, it was really only one that was even remotely exciting to me, quite frankly. And that was Andrew Yang. I was a confirmed member of the Yang gang for a brief minute. I donated to his campaign. I did not, but I did donate to his campaign. It was the only campaign I donated to wow. until Biden. I donated to Biden. I knew he didn't stand a chance of becoming the nominee, but sometimes it feels good to throw your support and your money uh, to someone who you believe in rather mm -hmm. than, you know, who you think could win. Yeah. So in the end, I did end up supporting Joey Biden, as did Joey. Andrew Yang. <laughs> I believe Andrew Yang is filing papers now to be the mayor of New York. So that's interesting. Wow. We'll, we'll keep you updated on that. Now, Yang was sort of, I guess you could say, a single issue candidate. Uh, and there's been plenty of those throughout history. And it was an issue that he called the elephant in the room and he had written books about. And it was an issue that literally nobody else on the stage thought was important enough to address for even a minute. And it happens to be an issue that I think is going to have a greater impact on society than virtually anything else in American history. And that's the issue of automation. Now, Andrew Yang is a proud capitalist, mm -hmm. as I am. He believes in American capitalism and ingenuity and American exceptionalism, but he wanted to introduce a form of universal basic income. And this is what got all the press. So you probably heard about this. Uh, he wanted to introduce this universal basic income to the country that he called the freedom dividend, whereby every single American over the age of 18 would automatically receive $1,000 a month from the government in response to worker replacement driven by technological automation. Now, to the right, this made him a socialist, but he was anything but. So in a podcast that he was a guest on, 
he gave an example of how automation will eventually devastate our economy to the point where he believes that uh, less than 30% of our workforce will be able to earn a living. Um, obviously, that would not only cause complete economic mayhem, but would likely ignite a class warfare that would uh, a class warfare that would make today's income inequality issues seem like nothing. So here's the example that he gave. Follow along, and I'll do my best to sort of hit all the details. I, you know, I'm not reading this off of anything, so forgive me if I forget a detail. But but I think uh, this is basically the gist. When we when we go into a supermarket, for instance, mm-hmm. and we buy a bag of lettuce, right? Okay. Um, there are many steps and many people that have to get paid along the way to make that lettuce get there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so a human being typically is planting the seeds, although there are some machines that do it. A human being is uh, planting the machines. Uh, a human being is tending to the crop. Uh, a human being is then picking the crop. Human beings are loading them onto trucks that mm-hmm. are driven by human beings. Yep. Uh, they are driven to a factor or, or a processing plant. Hopefully they don't have salmonella, which seems to always happen with lettuce. It's true. Uh, they are then taken off the truck by human beings. They are brought into the plants. They are processed, washed, uh, packaged that's done by a combination of machines and Mm -hmm. human beings um they are then taken back out to another truck that's driven by a human being that gets driven to your local uh supermarket where it gets unloaded by another human being and the kind man who works at the grocery store puts it up on the shelf you then walk in you grab the lettuce off the shelf you take it to a cashier another human being who swipes it and you're on your way okay or or it gets recalled because it has salmonella and then i get an email from my mother that tells me (laughs) that all lettuce has salmonella right exactly now um all of those people along the chain that have to get paid are factored into the cost of that lettuce, Correct. right? But here's the thing, and this is sort of Andrew Yang's point, is that we already have the technology to basically get rid of all of those jobs. The technology yeah. already exists. Absolutely. Okay? Machines can plant the seeds. Mm-hmm. Machines can tend to the crop. Machines can pick the crop. Machines can load the crop onto a onto a truck we have self-driving technology that already exists that 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 is being being implemented in other countries especially Mm -hmm. um that can drive it to a processing plant where it can again be unloaded by robots it's not a this already exists everything can be processed by a machine it could be packaged brought to your supermarket unloaded again amazon already has this tech if you've ever seen an amazon factory you see the machines loading things Mm -hmm. on the shelves there's no human intervention into that um and we even have the technology where you the consumer can walk into the supermarket grab the lettuce and technically you don't even need to go to the cashier that you have self cashier now uh self-checkout rather but you also amazon already has that technology where yeah. you can just walk out of the store that's right you just have your phone and you, you know i think what amazon books does that where you just buy a book and you you can you walk you out you can you can buy I don't know, you can't, I don't know if Amazon, I, I have one by me. I don't know if you can buy something and scan it yourself and walk out. You can do that in an Apple store. You can use right. your phone, scan it and walk out with it. I'm sure you can do that in an Amazon store, although I go to a checker probably because I, you know, I need to feel the need that I did something that day. Right. And I always feel like there, there's not even a need to have the 
dozen checkout no. people that they have there. No. You really only need one for the old person who can't work the yeah, checkout machine, right? <laughs> yeah. But all, but the bottom line here is that all of that has to, you know, all of those people have to get paid, and that's factored into the cost of the lettuce. Yeah. So now. All of that technology already exists, and the only reason it hasn't been implemented yet is, one, it hasn't been fully developed mm-hmm. yet, which is just a matter of time. All technology eventually gets fully developed. And two, we have to retain our economic, our current economic structure to a certain extent, or else we're going to implode, right? We're going to, we can't just let people not have jobs. Yeah. I you know, also believe that, that uh, there's a cost benefit analysis analysis a company does that's the money saved from um do you know implementing this into their workforce versus changing the entire way that they do business and Mm -hmm. automating something there has to be some some balance there that there has to be it's expensive to do that right now at this point i'm guessing of course the the point is that the technology exists already It's it's only a matter of time. Maybe mm-hmm. it's twenty years from now, but it's only a matter of time, yeah. right? And here's the more, here's where it gets into some really interesting stuff. So, the other point that Yang makes is that if indeed no human intervention is required for you to walk into a store, grab a bag of lettuce, and walk out, then theoretically, outside of uh, say a consumption tax, perhaps that would pay for upkeep on the technology itself. There's really no reason why that lettuce wouldn't be free, right? Right. So so <laughs> what he thinks is that we're headed towards a situation where our entire economic system is going to have to be revamped. Mm. The traditional system of money being exchanged for goods and services could cease to exist if those services especially are done by machine that doesn't need to get paid. Right. Cuz machines don't need to get paid. Sure. Um and he talks a lot about this happening within the next 20 to 30 years. But think about it like this. There is an estimated 3.5 million people who drive a truck for a living in this country. The technology for driverless trucks already exists and is being perfected and implemented in certain places around the world. We have them here. I think Amazon just announced they're going to start experimenting with it with their with their driverless campaign didn't yep, they say something they like that yeah for yeah so within the next couple of years so what do you think would happen to our economy if 3.5 million people lost their job over a couple year period especially people that don't have the educational background to you know learn to code or something right, like right. that mm-hmm. right so so andrew yang's whole idea of a universal basic income of a thousand dollars a month was not intended to inspire socialism, but actually to spark capitalist endeavors. The idea is that people could use that money who were being displaced to start their own businesses that would be relevant to the current day market and not have to be slaves to industries that were crumbling due to automation. It would essentially be like a safety blanket for those who were being priced out of their current industry. So obviously it's it's gonna be the blue collar jobs that go first, but it's not only blue collar jobs. For instance, there are already machines that are performing certain surgeries with more precision precision and accuracy than a human being can do it. Mm-hmm. And Yang gave a pretty compelling argument that we could eventually see even surgeons being replaced by machinery. In a TED Talk that he gave, a med school student raised his hand and said that some medical schools are actively discouraging students from going into certain surgical practices that are going to be obsolete in a number of years. 
the, the first thing we should talk about is what the classic conservative versus the newer populist, compassionate conservative, if you will, is thinking about this kind of thing. Because the classic conservative believes that nothing should ever interfere with the market, right? That's exactly now, correct. Right. Now, Tucker Carlson, love him or hate him, is considered a thought leader of today's conservative movement, and he actively calls for the government to shut down technology companies that are developing driverless technology yeah. in an effort to stop this from happening. He claims that's the government's responsibility. So, Justin, what do you think about this? Does the government have a role here or do they just butt out completely and let the market do what the market's going to do? And if people go under, or people go out of business, that's just going to happen. Once again, you're, you're, you are um, banging at the door of economic theory, which is a very mm-hmm. large conversation. But I right. tend to trend towards the idea that large or small corrections will be made um, in, in, in economics in general. And right. We need to be ready for those corrections. But they will eventually correct in the other way as well. People will catch up. Companies will catch up. Yes, people lose their jobs. Yes, companies will go out of business. But ultimately, things will right themselves. And if government steps in, you throw that completely out of balance and out of whack. And there's no telling what the end of that will be because you could actually, in giving too much government money uh, out to companies and shutting certain technologies down, you end up creating a larger problem than you could have if you just let this happen on its on its own. That's a very interesting statement because, you know, it's not necessarily in line with how conservative thought is trending. That shouldn't shock you. Um, Yeah. And uh, and we'll get to it in a minute, because I think a lot of it has to do with people having lost their sort of sense of American adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, It goes back to what we talked about with Hillbilly Elegy and being sort of stuck in a town. Yeah that you don't know your way out of um, and you just get stuck there and then start being a victim Mm -hmm. of the town and Mm -hmm. start blaming the government for why they haven't helped when it really was your responsibility. But anyway, um, while the technology today is obviously more advanced than it ever was before in history, uh, this isn't the first time concerns over technological displacement, if you will, have been a topic of discussion, nor is it the first time technology has threatened to take jobs. Uh, So I brought my buddy Justin with me, as always, Here I am. to give us a little buzzed history lesson on jobs that used to exist before good old American capitalism set them on the path of the dodo bird. Justin, buzzle my nuzzle. Buzz history. Hello, and welcome to Buzzed History. Today's subject is kind of a depressing one, or a fun one, depending on where you sit. We're going to talk about some of the great jobs we've lost to automation. Up first, we have the crossing sweeper. During the Victorian era, wealthy women and men did not want to get even a speck of dirt on their fancy clothings. And as dresses tended to trail along the ground, where there were horses and, you know, horse poo, among other things, entrepreneurial poor people took up the trade of crossing sweepers. They were typically young kids or elderly or disabled adults. With broom in hand, they would grab a street crossing and sweep clean the path before people as they walked. They would then expect a small tip in return, like the guy at the corner who wants to wash your windshield. Now, lamplighter is another profession that, as Rob has used the phrase, gone the way of the dodo. Before electricity and light bulbs illuminated our homes and streets, gas and oil were used to illuminate our lives. In the early 19th century, gas lamps were first installed in the dark, foggy streets of London and other cities mainly as a safety measure. Naturally, someone had to light these lamps at night and then extinguish them in the morning. Thus, the job of lamplighter came to be. 
In London, there were tens of thousands of these lamps. But in Lowell, Massachusetts, for example, a place Rob and I have both been, there were only a thousand lamps in 1888. Because of this, Lowell's lamplighters were paid about two dollars a day to care for 70 to 80 lamps. Their equipment included whale blubber, wick trimmers, and a ladder. Next up, we got the ice cutter. Before the mechanical refrigerator, people had ice boxes in their homes that had in them blocks of ice, ice that they purchased from a delivery man or ice cutter who came around the neighborhood weekly. Ice cutters went out onto frozen rivers, lakes, and ponds with shallow, slow-moving water because it formed solid, clear ice. And we generally like clear ice. First, the ice cutter would use a horse-drawn plow to keep the area free from snow. Once the water was frozen, ice cutters would score the ice into sections two feet by six feet, and then cut it nearly through with a horse-drawn device. Again, with the horses. The final cuts they made by hand. They floated the blocks of ice through a channel to a spot it could be removed and delivered. This was done until the 1930s, until mechanical refrigeration became the norm. The next one, I'm gonna bet you've never even given a second thought to. You ever go bowling and in between your turn, watch as the pins were magically resurrected? Well, this didn't always happen so easily. In the early 1900s, young men were hired to take care of this job. They handled up to four lanes per shift at a pay rate of 10 cents per game bowled. Gottfried Fred Schmidt eventually ended all of this manual labor when he unveiled an automatic pin setter to the public at an American Bowling Congress tournament in 1946, a mechanism pretty much used to this day. By the 1950s, pin setters were well established, and pin setters were obsolete. In the early days of the telephone, early to mid 20th century, access to the technology was more common in large cities and less so in remote areas. When they extended phone service to rural areas, phone companies employed party lines that could be shared by as many as 20 homes, thus reducing the number of lines they needed to string and maintain. Each household on the party line was given a phone number and a unique Morse code-like ring. If someone was calling you, the phone would ring in everyone's home. Because of the specific ring, you'd know it was for you. How annoying do you think that was? Any calls you wanted to place to people who were not on your party line had to go through a switchboard operator who would connect your call, a party line operator. Obviously, as time went on, switchboard operators became less and less necessary. Do you ever use an alarm clock? Ever throw it across the room or knock it off the shelf? Yeah. You couldn't do that in Britain or Ireland in the 1930s through the Industrial Revolution. The reason you couldn't do that was that you would have a knocker-upper to wake you from your slumber. It's just like it sounds. Someone who came to your bedroom window and tapped. Pretty freaking creepy, right? They had long poles so they could reach windows high up, and they wouldn't hang around. They had a busy schedule. If you weren't up, too bad for you. The question of the time was this: Who woke up the knocker-uppers? Now here's a tongue twister from the time. So that you have the answer, we had a knocker up, and our knocker up had a knocker up, and our knocker up's knocker up didn't knock our knocker up, so our knocker up didn't knock us up, 'cause he's not up. Now you can't say I don't ever do nice things for you guys. In closing, and to give you some food for thought, here are some jobs currently facing extinction: parking enforcement worker, photo processor, metal or plastic worker, cashier, bank teller, postal service worker, assembler. Taxi driver, bus driver, and truck driver, as Rob said. Pilot, fast food cook, sports referee, telemarketer. The last one I don't think we'll mind so much. Thank you. This has been another Buzzed History. Buzz History. That honestly was my favorite Buzz History you've ever done, just because it was lighthearted, and、yeah. I need that right now. It was a good time. It was. It was good. You know, it's funny. The.、Um, 
lamp lighting one uh-huh. and the uh, the phone switchboard one. Yeah. Um, those I believe had unions even. Yes. Like they were, they were big industries. Big big, big jobs. Yeah. Right. Um, and then the other thing is in Japan, there are already many restaurants that have self uh, robots that do the, the cooking, which it apparently works just as well. You know, everything in Japan is about precision. Yeah. So they teach, they program the robot to to do it exactly, do what he needs to do. Mm -hmm. And it comes out and the robots bring it to the table. It's kitschy now. It's like a theme thing no, absolutely and you know the automation the automation in the menu system and ordering too i think you know back in in college you were a big fan of dreaming up crazy restaurants and yeah. i think one of your things was an automated menu and you don't have to do anything and uh, you know these robots would do everything for you and now it's becoming yeah. reality it is it is becoming reality i will also say that something to not lose sight of as you might be thinking about this and think that sounds depressing throughout history. This has happened as, as Justin just went through mm-hmm. in his bus history. And what we always end up realizing is that our lives are better with the technology. Yes. It, there's an adjustment period, but the, the technological revolution and everything it brings is, is designed to make our lives more efficient we live longer because of it. Mm-hmm. We have less stress. You know, the fact, you know, there's there's a lot of people in this country that still bitch about the fact that we don't have uh, big uh, steel jobs yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, working in factories, breaking your back for, for 12 hours yeah, a day. Great. But that has actually led to an increase in life expectancy. Absolutely. The fact that, yeah, the, the conditions are better mm-hmm. um, as automation creeps in and takes some of these jobs. Okay. But with that said, what can you do to protect your job from automation? Well, there's a few things that I like to think of. Um, I happen to work in an industry where the threat of replacement by technology is a pervasive issue. Mm -hmm. Something that's been talked about for many, many years. I am a stenographic court reporter and I run my own stenographic firm. I don't want to get into too much of it because it's a very detailed thing and it'll be here for another hour. Uh, The job, let's just say requires such a high level of skill that most court reporters can't wrap their head around the idea that a machine could ever do what we do and that it could be done without human intervention. I am here to tell you that everything is only a matter of time. Every, all these technologies will happen in my career or my lifetime. I don't know, but it will happen eventually. And I have been very vocal in my industry to the displeasure of a lot of the old timers in my sure. industry about working with new technologies rather than shutting them down. The idea is to embrace them and work with them, figure out how they can help you. I have been so vocal that there are people within the industry that won't even talk to me anymore. But Justin and I have a unique perspective on this kind of thing because we saw the music industry go through something similar when digital music arrived. And while that may not seem like traditional automation, like that of driverless vehicles, uh, what the digital music revolution did was sort of automate the way in which we consume music. Rather than going to the store and purchasing a physical product for 20 to $25, we could now all of a sudden purchase, uh, you know, even a single or, or you know, a couple songs mm-hmm. for 99 cents. So let's talk for a minute about that and about the mistakes that the industry made by choosing to shun the technology rather than partnering with it. Yeah, well, I think you said it right away. I think that mm-hmm. when this technology came out, you saw, and and this is this is the this is exactly what you've been saying this entire time. There are two ways you can deal with technological advancements in your field. You can either oppose it and try and fight it, but it will always 
get you in the end, um, in yeah. my estimation and what I've seen right. in my life. And this was, mm -hmm. this was absolutely, um, unfortunately for you and I, who had just started going to college for this very yep. thing. For uh, music. Yeah. A, a big, we are the products of the worst timing in human history. We, we really, <laughs> yeah. we really are. Yeah. It doesn't get any worse. Well, and, and let's just get, give that a, a, you know, let, let's give the audience a reason why, yeah. you know, you have to remember that when Justin and I were growing up and our whole lives, a, the product of 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 physical that products. an artist put at the physical mm -hmm. product was worth twenty to twenty five dollars. That product literally went down to zero almost overnight. Well, it did almost it lost, overnight. It's lost its value. It lost its value completely because instead of creating a product that you paid less for, it literally lost its value completely because you had it, the two things that happened were number one, you had an industry oppose the technology. So they said, we're, we're going to, you know, Napster happened, the record labels all got together and they said, instead of embrace what you're doing, we are going to take you to court. And they sued Napster. Right. And that mm -hmm. just made it worse. Because and it was also the arrogance yes. of those CEOs mm -hmm. to think people will always want the product. That was a thing that if you've ever yes. watched documentaries on this, which there are many, uh -huh. the, 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 the CEOs of these big companies were saying there's no way these MP3s are going to catch on. People are always going to want to have CDs. Yeah, they were older yeah. guys. They didn't understand mm -hmm. the technology. They really didn't understand yeah. the internet. And they didn't, under they right. didn't understand the generation that was using it. Um, right. But what these kids were doing, they didn't have an option of buying music digitally. If, if the record labels had you know figured out a way to partner with napster and say let's open a store together which they ended up doing way later and it took way longer for the industry to write itself and it's finally just beginning to 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 grab its footing now um, you mean with streaming services with streaming services stuff? but right because i was going to say you know itunes is is still not a replacement for the way it no, was because no. we now are in a singles market it used to have it used to be that you had a single on a record yeah, and you'd have you to buy the whole record mm -hmm. right now it's 99 cents i mean you're talking about a, what a 95 percent reduction yeah, in it, in value well, well now yeah. it's commoditized i mean now you pay you know a, a single price a month and you get literally all the music you can possibly digest right. so it's really right. when you consider that value loss it is unbelievable which is why you see a royalties issue with right. some of these songwriters what what we're saying is that is that when you try and oppose this this kind of technology you could really lose wildly and that's what happened in the music industry they didn't create right. a solution for this until way later because it was being it was so they were so busy litigating it um, yeah, that they completely lost it. their industry. It fell on their face. Yeah, not to mention the uh, unhipness, if you will, yeah. of of fighting mm -hmm. um, your customers. Yeah, we well, saw that in, with Metallica. Industry that were, yeah, we, yeah, Metallica mm -hmm. became terminally unhip at at least at that point yeah. for going after Napster mm -hmm. because um, they, you know, a lot of people figured, oh, they're rich, they can afford it now, and that's just, I always thought that was a stupid thing too because. You know, they're trying to make money well, just it's, like it's, anyone it's else. Literally, but, I mean, the yeah. way I've never, I've never forgotten about how someone explained it to me, which is very apt, is that it's literally like going into a store and stealing a CD. Yeah, it's the the work that the record company had put into marketing it, the work that the artist had put into creating it, the work that the engineer uh, and the producer uh, put into recording it, it. All of that is literally the value becomes zero because someone right. just went and stole it. And and the point is that it didn't necessarily have to be like that. No. The 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 uh, companies like Napster did try to make deals with the record yes, labels, 100%. and the record labels refused and basically gave them the finger. Yes. The other big point is that this whole thing, this whole debacle, basically led to um, 
the disintegration of the middle class musician. Yes. And um, that happened in our time mm-hmm. as musicians. We saw it in real time yeah. happening yeah. where there used to be bands on a, on a, on a record labels roster that were sort of not big, huge bands, not Bruce Springsteen or not Coldplay, but um, you know, were acts that could draw a couple thousand mm-hmm. people and made a living, you know, yeah, and were I mean, able to sort millionaires. Of I mean, it could be millionaires, yeah. you know, right. Right. Um, it took out uh, all of those. And mm-hmm. now you just have the big and you have the nothing, the people yeah. who are doing it for free, basically. And by the way, um, it used to be that a record label, when they uh, sign an act, they would, they would put money into an artist's career and developing that artist's career. Yeah. They would mm-hmm. allow them a couple albums to find themselves or to find their audience. Now, if you get a single, you're lucky. If it comes out and it doesn't work, you are gone. They don't have the money to sustain uh, artist's development. It happens all outside no the label system now. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that has kept my industry uh, strong is union-like groups within the industry that have lobbied for certain protections as a, you know, a, a, in order to help the the people who are engaging in that industry. And as a person on the left, I am very much in support of unionization and worker protection. And I would much rather have certain types of automation shut down groups of citizens organized via a union than by government. Because at least that's working within the confines of the free market, right? So unionization and organization within industry is a good way to prevent the effects of automation. Now, someone like Andrew Yang will say there's no way to stop technology and it's only a matter of time. But the point is that representation for workers is a good thing that can prolong and fortify an industry. And I'm not sitting here in favor of industries going under because of, I, I want people to stay employed as much as possible. It's better for the country if we're, uh, you know, if we're able it's to be for the country employed. now, right, right, right now. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But the point is that I am not opposed. I am opposed to government intervention into this, yeah. into this topic. I am not opposed to people organizing and doing what they can to, uh, stave off the effects of automation for as long as they can. Now, it doesn't mean shunning it like mm-hmm. we were just talking about in the music industry. Maybe it means working with it. But I, again, it's, it goes back to the topic of worker protections and why unions are important to protect the work. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I go a different way on this a little bit just because okay. obviously being on the right, I'm not as in favor of, of unionization. Um, right. And I'm definitely not in favor of gov- a government intervention, as we said. Uh, right. I, I honestly do think that this... This kind, this kind of issue really does push innovation. It really does push the free market to innovate, to come up with, whether that's different kind of training, whether that's a different kind of industry, it, it pushes that forward. Um, if, there are, if there are unions that, that slow that down, I honestly think that it does more damage. To me, they're one and the same, government intervention right. and unionization in this particular field, because to uh-huh. me, slowing down that technology is really just, it's, it's prolonging the inevitable and it may yeah. cause a larger problem in the end, even it, even though it may be uncomfortable for my generation at the time. Yeah, it's just for me personally, um, in my industry, I've yeah. seen it firsthand. Mm-hmm. I know that I have, we have some friends of the pod who uh, are in my industry who could vouch for this. Mm-hmm. We have seen firsthand what organization of strong people who are willing to fight certain legislation, of government course. legislation yeah. that 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 uh, has protected our industry and has has kept us going. And so, you know, I just think organization and and 
mm-hmm. that usually happens in the form in the free market of unionization yeah. is is a good thing. Yeah, look, there have been times in history when um when labor having the power has been good for the economy. There's been times in our history when labor having the power has been bad for big business and our right. economy. So it just really depends. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, one of the last points I want to make is that uh capitalism is about ultimately the the adventure and adaptation yeah um you know i i uh i remember hearing a very compelling interview with ben shapiro and tucker carlson Mm -hmm. and ben was taking the stance of he was he said something like all you're guaranteed in america is the adventure that's it yeah um so you know because tucker was making the point that there are these factory towns that have become desolate and why hasn't the government stepped in to try to Mm -hmm. help these people um do something basically they've the globalized their jobs away to china they're now they have automation that's taken the last bit of jobs that was left these people are dying we need to do something um and what ben was saying was that you know there's nothing stopping these people from getting up and moving, right. getting new skills. I went back to school when I was 31 years old. Yeah, you did. That's all you're guaranteed mm-hmm. in in this in this country. Yeah. You know, we don't we're not a European country that has these large social safety nets and that is that has good things and that has some bad mm-hmm. things. But, you know, I think a lot of people especially in middle America will get would get offended by that idea that they should up and move and you know, you hear that that, that sort of condescending term learn to code yeah but mm-hmm. it's it, this was a conservative ideal for a long time mm-hmm. you know um and you know, have any more thoughts on that i mean no, i think that's I, yeah. I think that that's fair i think that there are i mean look there are plenty of government options you want to go back to school there's government loans i mean you're going to ultimately right. have to pay them but these things do exist for your benefit and so i think that utilizing these things and whether yep. that's you know, in, in assistance in learning a new skill or assistance mm-hmm. in relocating, there are options out there that exist yeah. that, uh, you know, are sometimes just a couple clicks or a phone call away. I'm not saying that any of that is easy. This is a hard to- and traumatic mm-hmm. time someone would have to go through, but it right. is, it is possible in America. And that is yeah. part of why I think our country is so great. And we've said it before. Right. Right. Of course. <laughs> And then finally, before we let you guys go here, um, there was one more thing that Andrew Yang talked about that I thought was really interesting that I just wanted to sort of put the bug in you guys' ear. He talks about reimagining paid employment. And this really caught my interest. He brought up the example of the stay-at-home mom. And the stay-at-home mom is obviously a very important job in our society. Mm -hmm. If more people took it very seriously. Obviously, I think we'd have better outcomes generally. Yeah. Um, it's also one of the hardest jobs. I know from personal experience, I, I have now been home with my kids for 10 months. They are the hardest bosses yeah. I have ever had. Even before that, when they were um, babies, you were the stay-at-home yeah, dad. Yeah, I, when I was going through school, I was, I was doing the stay-at-home dad thing when my wife had to go back to work. It is a hard, thankless job, and it's a really important job where conservatives have said for years, one of the most important jobs. Yeah. But we've never thought about it as a job that would receive pay. Mm-hmm. That's never been a thing that's even been thought of. And what Andrew Yang has, he used that as an example to say, maybe we need to start thinking along those lines. Maybe these should be like government paying jobs, like uh, like anything, any other government job, mm-hmm. like a police officer. And we're, we're investing in the the youth of the country, because I got to tell you, 
from personal experience, I do a pretty good job at at uh, at being at being the dad who's at home with the kids. Mm-hmm. But if I was getting paid for it, yeah, I'd job. go all out. <laughs> I, I would I wouldn't half as anything. Like it wouldn't just be peanut butter and jelly. I'd I'd put some foie gras on that peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> like I'd go I'd go all out. Right. So this is just something to think about. Is that in this economy that's becoming more and more automated, where people are going to be losing jobs? Maybe this is something. That kind of idea is where you take a job that has normally been pay free and you think about what we can do to, uh, you know, add some some income in there and give people some incentive to not just do a better job, but to want to have kids Mm -hmm. because aren't uh, conservatives always talking about having more kids um, and how that's a good thing. You know, maybe that would incentivize people. Right. Exactly. So. So, um, yeah. why not? What do you think about that? I think uh, find someone else other than the government to pay for it, and I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there are plenty of government jobs. What if we thought about it as a government job? It's you know? still expansion of the government. It's more money. Right. And, uh, you yep. know, it's it's an interesting proposition. I think yep. finding a way to figure it out within the free market excites me more. I don't know how right. you do that. But, yeah. you know, expansion of the government is never something, and government spending is never something you're going to get me excited about. Right, of course. Well, that about does it, guys. We wanted to uh, to throw that out there. If you have any ideas, you have any thoughts on this um, on this uh, topic of the day, I think this has been one of, for me at least, one of the more interesting it ones, is. especially because we needed we needed some uh, like a break from yeah. this all no, the craziness. No, it felt great so, to talk about something yeah. else. Yeah, um, if you exactly. guys have questions or comments, hit up the Discord. It's got some spider webs on it, but just clear those off and yeah. uh, and and give us your comments, or suggestions, or questions on the topic, and we'll be happy to answer them on the air. Yep. Good episode. Have a good week, guys. Remember, next week, we will not be having a Down the Middle podcast. We will instead be having the premiere of The Big Stuff. Yep. You will hear teasers from it. Uh, it will post uh, where week. you can find it and links to all that in all of our normal places. So yep. go to our socials and uh, you can search for The Big Stuff. But you know when things first come out, they're not always easily searchable. So we'll give right. you guys links um, as soon as we have them. We'll put them up. Cool. Anyway, guys, have a good week. Stay sane. Don't do anything crazy. Oh, I feel like saying we that got is a, a lot bad, going it's on. It's just like every time we say it, they just do the yeah. crazy things. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this coming week. Yeah, be We're, safe. Uh, How about coming that? Up be on safe. Inauguration. Yeah. yeah, stay out of DC. Do so, me a favor. Stay away from your. I'll tell you this. Stay away from your state capital. Stay away from yeah. DC. <laughs> just stay home. Just stay home. Right. Right. All right. Have a good one. Bye. This has been another episode of Down the Middle, the fastest growing moderate political podcast in the nation. Go to downthemiddlepod.com to find out more info and contact us. If you send us questions, we'll answer them on air. Follow us on social media at Down the Middle Podcast on Instagram, at Down the Middle PC on Twitter, and at Down the Middle Pod on Facebook. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. Five stars, people. Five stars. All right. Good night for now.